This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the program where we give you the latest, the greatest information, tools, information, ideas, research, everything you need to uh, live a healthier, happier life, or simply just to get through another day. New food products. New food products today? No, but I mean, usually. Yeah. Well, yeah, usually like the latest Oreo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or the Recently, latest. Recently, the, the Peeps Oreo. The Peeps Oreo. Yuck. Or new new things at uh, fast I wonder, food restaurants. I wonder if they have Peeps Oreos on any of those other seven planets they discovered. Um, Three or four habitable. Yeah. Probably not. Not sure. I would not try Peeps Oreos or Oreo-flavored Peeps. Wow. Good call. Smart. Words Just like I'm not going to eat the pineapple pizza we talked about yesterday. But it came in. From Megan from West Virginia cleared up the deal. Of course, you should have pineapple on your pizza. There is sort of the sweet. Angry crowd today. Maybe a little... The, the sauce with the sweet, and you know, maybe the saltiness, maybe yeah. some uh-huh. of the meat products on there. It's a wonderful it, combination. Yeah. Terry, would you go just slap an orange on a piece of toast? No, why would you do that? Exactly. It's been proven that I pineapple might, on pizza that. is something people like. An orange on toast? Not, maybe not so much. Sounds like How about not. just a little... It's uh, all the same. <laughs> <laughs> it's the exact same thing. But you need something sweet every once in a while on the pizza to contrast with the savory... Pepperoni. Then get a dessert pizza. No, not the same. Not the same. I mean, that for sure. Get one. Yeah. I mean, but just not to, yeah. Crazy. Today, also, we're going to be talking about when you get pulled over by a cop, are they doing that for public safety or for public profits? Are they, are they just pulling you over to make money? Well, it is a billion dollar industry. And according to our next guest, uh, our first guest on the show today, we're going to be talking about, you know, maybe it's a lot less about safety because sometimes the way they pull you over, they actually may be creating more and more safety issues, right? All of a sudden, you've got people going 70 miles an hour and you've got two or three people being pulled over at a time in certain uh, little games they're playing. Yeah. Don't you hate it when you get pulled over and the cop says your taillight is out? Oh. And then you say, my taillight's not out. And then you hear this. Yes. I hate that. Has that ever happened to you? Every day. Really? No, but I always get I always get multiple tickets for some reason. Like I'll get pulled over and they're like, hey, do you know you're missing a wheel or a tire? I'm like, no. Yeah, you are. Well, and uh, in Oregon, you're not allowed to pump your own gas and you're also not allowed to drive your own car. Really? Yeah, I'm. I don't. Not a lot of people know that. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't been to Oregon lately. Well, I actually have, but I don't remember seeing that. So it's all Teslas wherever you go. It's all Teslas, self-driven, with no gas apparently. Yeah, unless you want someone to do it for you. Wow, Oregon, really progressive up there. Uh, we'll be getting to all that fun, plus of course some crazy headlines. Also celebrating Chili Day, and curling is cool day. I love me some good chili. I think chili is cool. Curling. Curling, curling mm. is cool. Boy, speaking of curling, my drive here today was – my toes were curled. 
Oh, I thought you were going to say it's because you came in with a perm this morning. No. I've been curling all morning. No. He felt like his car had the control that a chunk of cement sliding across ice has. Do you have the same issue? I drive about, what, 35 miles every day to work. And the first 30 miles, easy. Yeah, no problem. Cheesy. Piece of cake. By the way, freeway, more snow at my house than we have here. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's the last five miles of my journey every day as I travel through a city. I won't name what city, but it rhymes with Blorum. <laughs> wow. I'm mad. Well, possibly but apparently they don't. Plow the roads? They don't plow the roads. They don't salt the roads. Crazy. Yeah. And it's really until I get to campus. This was audio from my drive today. Wow. How Whoa. did you make it out of that alive? It was crazy. Listen to the bird. If, you, if we had let that go a little longer, there's usually some birds chirping in the background clearing, yeah. Yeah. and eating the carcasses. <laughs> yeah. Wow! Then my last. Then once you get to campus, it's usually pretty good. It's just through the city. I do not understand it, but I'm sure they'll ticket me if I was speeding, or have a light, or they'll break a light out. Apparently, I had to slide right through a red light. I just turned on my hazards and I just went for it. Man. What's happening to this country? That's why curling is cool. Because our drive today was crazy. So we'll get to all that fun today. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Trump sent two members of his cabinet south of the border on Wednesday to explain his new crackdown on illegal immigration. The fence-mending mission began with Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's arrival in Mexico City for a meeting with Mexico's president. Earlier, Homeland Security Chief John Kelly assured Guatemala's leader that Mr. Trump is not interested in mass deportation. But the topic of fence-building is still a sore subject. Mexico's foreign minister said on Wednesday he'd take the fight to the U.N. to defend the rights of immigrants in the U.S. Mr. Trump's new immigration order could subject millions of people living in the U.S. illegally to deportation back to Mexico, even if they're originally from a third country. Wow. So you're not from Mexico. You're from, say, Guatemala. Guatemala. They're going to send you to Mexico. It's like a penalty. I love Mexico. I'd go to Mexico. It prioritizes anyone convicted of a crime or charged with an offense, even minor offenses, could get you sent back. But I'm from Argentina. Right. To Mexico you go. Have you been to Tijuana? No, that's not in every situation, but yeah. the way you read it, it's like, okay, are you just is a cost-saving measure not our problem send it to Mexico, then they figure out if they go back to Argentina? I'm not sure how that works. It makes sense if they went through Mexico. Yeah. But if they didn't go through Mexico... I don't... I, I think they made a movie about this called uh, Hidden Offenses. Oh, I hear it's going to be an Academy Award winner. Vice President Mike Pence speaking Wednesday in St. Louis issued a stern condemnation of vandalism at a local Jewish cemetery. At least 100 tombstones were found toppled over at the cemetery located uh, just outside St. Louis. We condemn this vile act of vandalism and those who perpetrated it in the strongest possible terms, Pence said later. While visiting the actual cemetery, Pence said there is no place in America for hatred or acts of prejudice or violence or anti-Semitism. In a show of support for Jewish Americans, Muslim Americans have raised more than $108,000 to help clean up the cemetery there in St. Louis. Have they really? It went from 20000 to okay, 108000 this is such a great example of America. And, by the way, he looked very presidential. Mike well, Pence like looked as presidential as anybody has looked. Then he rolled up his shirt sleeves, grabbed a rake, and started raking leaves. Well, I know, but that like, is okay. presidential. 2020. <laughs> okay, they, <clears throat> they tipped over tombstones, and he's raking leaves 
well, right yeah. now. It's what like, are you going to do? Just, you, you, you want him to pull out like a some no. cement and start photo, cementing these? Photo ops look fake. Yeah, but it I think I think Mike Pence was really he really wanted to rake that day. He okay. was just raking. Whatever. Can a guy not rake? Politics. White House spokesperson Kellyanne Conway was sidelined from appearing on TV in the wake of her on-air remarks contradicting official comments on the Michael Flynn controversy. This, according to CNN, Conway has not appeared on TV since remarking last week that Flynn offered to resign in the wake of the scandal surrounding his discussion of sanctions with the Russian ambassador. If you remember, she, facts. she said he has the full confidence of the White House. Yeah. Later that night, <clears throat> oh, he resigns. No, he doesn't. He's out the door. By the way, have you noticed it's been a calmer week? Well, that's what they said. It's been calmer. She was way off message. Mm-hmm. We've had a better week without her commenting on everything. I don't. I yeah. I don't think they've. I don't think the the White House has been dressing as beautifully and incredibly because she's a great dresser. She's at the press conferences. Yeah. Yesterday, I was watching the White House press conference. A woman from a Las Vegas paper asked a question about the Oscars, and she put her hand in her hand like, why mm. didn't she just ask a dumb question? Because it was kind of a She's dumb also, I think, honestly, one of the smartest people in the room yep. at, at any of those meetings. She says But five, now they're not letting her talk. 5% of her job deals with TV. The rest of it's just so much more. She's amazing. working on her portfolio. She was on, she was on TV last night. Oh, okay. Yeah. It Fox. was Sean Hannity. Oh, oh yeah. Live from the Conservative Political Action Conference. That Donald Trump avoided last year because there was going to be protests. This yeah. year, he's the keynote speaker, I think. Yeah. Well, he's going to speak. I don't know if he's the keynote. Well, but he's he going to be there. Bannon. And I mean, yeah. Bannon wrote it. Right. But he's yeah. going to read it. It's fine. Well, she said she was looking for a house in schools. That's where she's been all week. Kelly oh, Conway. Because she's everywhere else. I was reading that she's been working on a portfolio. She has a large portfolio at the White House, and she's <laughs> working on. She's working on all of these other things. But they're not letting her talk anymore, even though she is the person that got him elected, apparently, yes, apparently. other than Trump and Bannon. Also, as you alluded to earlier, NASA announced on Wednesday that seven Earth-sized planets have been spotted around a small star in the Aquarius constellation. So cool. The uh, the planets, they said, the star at this uh, little solar system, I guess you'd call it, is so small and cold that the seven planets are temperate, which means they could have some liquid water and maybe life by extension on the surface. Wow. The discovery marks the first time that so many planets close to Earth's size have been found in orbit around the same star. The star is called TRAPPIST-1. So keep that in mind. Okay, yeah. Maybe writing we, that we, down we, right we now. Talk to our TRAPPIST-1. Friend, we talked to our friend Pluto. Maybe we can get some ideas on ah. who TRAPPIST-1 is, what kind of personality. What Pluto thinks about TRAPPIST-1, because right. he's probably the closest person to TRAPPIST-1. He may have first-hand, or not person, planet. first-hand knowledge. Dwarf Scientists planet. have said the news brings hope that the Milky Way may resemble our own home and even could spur on the hunt for alien life, says the nerd scientist who's like, oh, goody. This is so great. Let's get our favorite guy from the University of Utah to come on and explain what this means because all of of the astrologers, no, astronomers... Not astrology. Space guys. Astrology. I, I was just is looking your, up astrology. Space is your zodiac. Because this right? is the age of Aquarius. Right. Because it's in the Aquarius. The dawning, perhaps. The dawning of, and it's Trappist one. Let's get our friend on because okay. everyone's giddy about this, right. and I don't, I don't, I don't I fully understand why. Because it's it's still like two hundred trillion light years away. It's, it's space. People like it, but, but it's super close. It's not here. It's a new world. Maybe we can go there. I wonder by the if way, they I'm an their roads. I'm an, I'm an Aries, by the way. Are you an Aries? I'm mm-hmm. a I'm a Taurus. Sign of the bull. Hmm. Nothing but bull here. Okay, I have I Let's have some I have some that. more notes. Okay, continuing on. Yeah, there are the Washington Post has a thing called a yell o matic. Pardon? Yell 
Yellowmatic. Like an ah! We have a Yellowmatic. If you want to, you go there. Your pol- your local politician might not be on there, but they Hillary Clinton's on there. Jeb Bush, a lot of the stuff from cool. the election cycle, plus a lot of the current uh, politicians that are getting yelled at at their town halls. Yeah, yeah. All, they they're, they've collected all the videos in one place. Excellent. So if you find this enjoyable, as I do, to watch people like you know try to get their point across and then it's not going to work at all and you right. can tell by halfway right. through their comment. It's kind of fun to watch. Yellowmatic, it's equal opportunity. Nancy Pelosi's on there getting yelled at. Everybody gets Mitch yelled McConnell's at. Mitch on there getting yelled at. So you get all sides of why? the aisle. But why would you want to watch that? It's just kind of fun. Isn't like, that, that going to be on Netflix soon? Probably. It's like going home. <laughs> You're just watching <laughs> politicians go and run away. That sounds horrible. Uh, they'll add more as uh, every day more stories come out. Of yeah, horrible interactions between politicians and the people that. Boy, and they're playing they this up like this is uh, like the Boston Tea Party revolt. Sort of. It's it's interesting. I don't remember the actual Tea Party Tea Party getting this much attention in the press. Like in two thousand nine. Yeah, they did. They got this much. Well, they got this much because it was shocking to see politicians being yelled at in this way. Well, but did they – And then they caught the eye of certain news organizations who covered them more and that kind of built them up to the midterms where they were able to make some inroads in Congress. Interesting. That's kind of the idea. At least people aren't hitting each other. It's not violent. It's it's just just, loud. There was a day when you would pull off your glove and you'd slap the other person in the Mm. face. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was like yesterday. Also, we talked before uh, Trump took office. There are 549 key positions requiring Senate confirmation in the government. Yeah. Where do, you, where do you think he is at the moment in filling those 400 or 549 well, positions? I bet he's got 12, 13. He's got 14 of those confirmed. The cabinet. Yeah. Well, there's well not couple, even the full cabinet. Right. There's 20 awaiting confirmation and 515 positions waiting nomination. What is the delay? I guess they're waiting for the ones they already have up on deck to get processed through, and then they can put more. But you have 500 seats to fill. The State Department still hasn't held an actual press conference since uh, uh, Trump took office because they don't have a staff to hold a press conference. They put out – the guy that's putting out the press releases is an Obama administration holdover because they don't have anyone to take his spot. Well – it just seems like that's not good business from all these billionaire business people. Wrong. Could be. Till- I mean, Tillerson's over the State Department. He knows how to run a business. Except You're the number two guy is the appointee from Trump that he can't seem to get rid of that he'd like to. Yeah. He also went to his staff and said, Tillerson, Tillerson and asked them, could you find out a way to get me some more like TV exposure? Because I don't seem to be in the conversation when it comes to international affairs in our country, and I'm the Secretary of State. Yeah, you'd probably need a communications. Director. That would probably be helpful, and they don't have that. Holy cow! Which is crazy because there's, you know, there's people loving and would want that job, and yes, I mean, because that's not speaking for Trump; that's speaking for Tillerson. Yeah. So yeah, there, there's problems. There's 500 positions that need to be filled. So if you need uh, a you job, know, well, apply. you know, it's Hillary Clinton's fault. Also, the the uh, money that was first estimated by the New York City Police Department to protect uh, Melania Trump, Baron Trump, uh, Trump Tower, mm-hmm. the president when he's Trump at Trump dog, Tower, yeah. they originally said it would be like five hundred thousand dollars a day. It looks like when President Trump's in town, it's only three hundred eight thousand dollars a day. 
Wow. So, you know, it's a discount. A lot less expensive. So that ends up being uh, what they, they thought it was going to be, what's the number? $24 million from November to Inauguration Day. They uh-huh. thought it was going to be like $35 million. Yeah. Right? So it seems to be less than what they estimated. <sighs> so we're only going to spend like $50 million a year protecting Trump Tower. Great. And, and because, nation, so. well, wow. So Think, he's already saving money. Yeah, look. Think about if they – so if, she, if Melania and Barron move to the White House, yeah. we will be saving because then it will well, be a lot less expensive to protect it. It would probably be yeah. only like $20 million Yeah, they'd have a To protect the empty building. Yeah. The well, the empty floor. The floor. building's not empty. Yeah. They just need to live in tents. And also – It would save so much money. Politico wrote a story about the Trump uh, campaign staff – as they tried to help Trump and kind of steer him away from things that would make him angry, which would lead him to Twitter, which would cause them more headache. Yeah, yeah. And it says here, the in-person touch is also important to keeping Trump from running too hot. One Trump associate said it's important to show Trump difference and offer him praise and respect as that will lead him to more often listen to what's being said yeah, in meetings so you, and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, you stroke the ego. And if Trump becomes obsessed with a grudge, aides need to try and change the subject, friends say. Leaving him alone for several hours can prove damaging because he <laughs> consumes too much TV and gripes to people outside the White House. Where's the president? Part of the current problem is that Trump is adjusting to his new circumstances. He has plenty of time to stew over negative reviews as he spends time alone in the evenings and early mornings as his wife and and his son is there they're away living in New York yeah. so he has mornings and evenings and he watches TV and stews and tweets <laughs> and you can't get that phone away from they him need, what they need is a trump sitter you know like everybody has when the sitter comes over you're like okay don't let him watch TV yeah don't let him eat too much sugar do not leave him alone uh and you give this list of things you can't have him do and that's what they're giving us he just is a grown Child, I guess. I mean, it sounds rude, but they they know how to handle him. You just you stroke his ego. You make him happy. You don't let him have a, you know a vendetta overnight. If you're going to give him somebody to be mad at, give it to him in the morning. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Thank you, Mr. Spicer. Wow. Okay. You know what? We're all learning. That's all. That's good. And it, again, sure, it was a bad first month. But there's still 47 more. It's all good. It's all good. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about uh, modern traffic enforcement. Is it about dollars or is it more about safety? It, uh, some of the latest information may, may upset you a bit. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Traffic tickets are a billion-dollar industry and have some wondering if traffic enforcement is actually more about revenue rather than safety. Here with us today is James Walker, executive director of the National Motorist Association Foundation, and uh, we are going to be picking his brain about what's really going on when you get pulled over or cited for a traffic violation. James C. Walker, thanks for being with us today. You are most welcome. Okay, nice to be with you. This is a big. This is a big deal to me. Is it, in in your opinion, is it? Are traffic citations generally more about safety or money? Unfortunately, 
uh, far too many are about money rather than safety, and that's been the case since uh, the 1970s. Now, talk about that, because when when I read uh, about that, I thought, wow, it 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 started in the 70s, I guess, with uh, with oil embargoes and trying to supposedly save money and fuel. Correct, uh, but unfortunately for the the planners of that, it really didn't save very much fuel. They wanted to save 2 to 3% nationwide with the national maximum speed limit. The best estimates are it saved less than 1%. <laughs> and, and the reason they – because they, 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 I guess the roads were built to, to be going 70, 75 miles an hour, but then they cut the speed limits back to 55. Correct. It, just to save fuel, and it didn't save anything, hardly any. No, for a very brief time – People did drive less and drive a bit slower, not for safety reasons, but because fuel was hard to get during that first embargo. Is that when they got a taste for uh, this idea of, hey, there's money to be made with people speeding? That's exactly what happened. It turned into a moneymaker, supported heavily, of course, by the insurance um, companies because they got to surcharge the insurance premiums of safe drivers who got caught in the speed traps. Mm. So tell me what the National uh, Motorist Association does, foundation. What what is your job? We were formed uh, in uh, 1982 uh, basically to combat the national maximum speed limit and try to get it uh, repealed. Uh, there were other groups involved as well, but we were kind of the lead grassroots group that led the fight. And we got it eased to 65 uh, in 1987 and then finally repealed in December of, of 1995. That was our original mission, was to get rid of the, the national maximum speed limit law. Um, we've gone much further than that now, and we combat all kinds of uh, abuses of traffic enforcement for revenue, including things like speed and red light cameras. And because uh, – and yours is database. You're not just doing this because you got a, an axe to grind. You there's, – there's not a lot of data supporting that speed limit changes uh, or lowering the speed limit actually increases safety. Is that right? That's correct. Um, the largest study ever done uh, was done uh, by – uh, a man by the name of Parker, who studied a hundred uh, places where the speed limits were going to be either raised or lowered. These were not experimental places done for that reason. They were places that the the local or state uh, transportation people had already planned to raise or lower the speed limit. You And he found basically that you could raise or lower the limits by up to 15 miles an hour and you change the 85th percentile speed not more than three miles an hour, usually zero to two, and that this the most predictable, uh, safest way to do it was to raise the limits up to or very close to the 85th percentile. Hmm. And I guess this is because people are going to drive what they feel safe driving, not necessarily what's posted. People drive to the speeds they feel safe and comfortable, and at least 85% of them get it right. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And yet they also see that there's revenue to be made. And in a time and age when revenue matters and, you know, raising taxes doesn't seem as appropriate, but they can still make money on citing you. 
uh, it seems like an easy way to tax. Unfortunately, that's exactly what's happened. It's um, Traffic enforcement in many places has become a road tax rather than a safety program. Is it uh, how much revenue do tickets citations how much how much are they producing a year? We think it's a multi-billion dollar industry between the uh, ticket fines and the insurance surcharges. And now they have the the cameras taking your pictures. Correct. And I mean I'm not this isn't even just parking enforcement I guess. I mean there's so many things that can go wrong plus there's also uh Sometimes you wonder if there's a racket on um, on getting your car legal to drive, inspections, and how now inspectors are working with – I mean now your local gas station can actually act as the government giving you these – the stickers and everything you need. Is – again, is this more for taxation or is it more for safety? Largely it's for taxation, uh, especially with modern cars. Modern cars have become so reliable that uh, inspections, uh, in most cases, are are just about money. Yeah. Now, I remember when I was a teenager and you would do anything you could to get that broken car to work, you yep. know, bailing wire, you'd, you'd, you'd make it work. But nowadays, sure. the kid, the cars are – my kids are driving. They're safe. It's, it's a whole different game. Where does all of this money go? Uh, various places, but in uh, in most venues, the money ends up in the general fund. It, it isn't even um, ticket revenue isn't even required to be spent on things like roads or or road safety. It Man. just becomes general revenue. So it's is, it's not even stupid. educating our kids. It's not making more of those scary movies to keep them from <clears throat> from uh, driving crazy. It's just it's it could go anywhere. Now, there's, <clears throat> there are some tickets, of course, that are legitimate uh, and are based on safety. Right. We very much support those. Um, we don't like uh, a drunk driver with .15 BAC on the road. Nobody does. Uh, we don't like the, the person who's driving 20, 25 miles an hour above the normal levels. That does, that's, that's a hazard. Um, so is the guy who's driving 20, 25 below the normal levels. Uh, that's actually more dangerous. No, that's true. That's and, totally true. We just uh, – we were just – we have uh, a lot of snow this last night and some ice on the way in. And I drove down a really icy hill next to a, um, a student driver. And the student driver was terrified, probably their first time ever in such a situation. Mm-hmm. And they may have been causing more problem than safety. Uh, so – we have to educate these people, but it seems like the money for citations should be going to making everything safer. And uh, that would at least uh, uh, give it a a, a decent purpose, uh, although we still think it's wrong to ticket safe drivers no matter how well you spend the money. That's true. No, it's uh, totally true. The um, uh, drivers can, can go to our site, motorists.org, and get a ton of information about how all this works. What are the abuses? How are they misengineered on purpose to produce ticket revenue rather than safety? Um, we've got a lot of information on our site about how this all works. Now, isn't it true on your site, too, people can go report, uh, you know, some of these, I don't know what you call them, traps or scams that might be being played out by certain Absolutely. cities or counties? Yes. And um, 
we we use self-reporting. If if you come upon a speed trap in your area, uh, you can report it, and then other people can chime in. And so if you see a reported speed trap on XY Highway, uh, and you have 65 people who say yes, that is a trap, and three people that say no, it isn't, then that's a trap. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, okay. So so to speak to the person. I mean, I sometimes you'll go through what I would call I don't know if it's a trap or, but where it's a concerted effort by the highway patrol to they have some guy on an overpass, you know, with a gun or a, a radar gun catching speeders, and then they have three or four cops out there pulling everybody over. What's wrong with that? It's to me sometimes I think, wow, there's law enforcement at work. That's uh, uh, sometimes called a wolf pack. Mm. Uh, operation and it can cause more danger than they're supposedly trying to prevent uh, because most states now have a move over law uh, so if there's a traffic stop on on the side of the highway you're supposed to move over a lane uh, there's a, a particularly notorious place on um, in urban interstate in Michigan where this is done regularly and I have seen the speeds of normal traffic, which runs 75 or so in that area, in a 70 zone, uh, seen it come right down to zero, mm. full stop, because you get traffic stops on both sides of the highway, and now you have four or five lanes trying to squeeze into two, and it just creates a monster uh, congestion. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that seems like that's where someone's going to get hurt, right? It happens. Yeah, because... You're going 70. All you need is one inattentive person at 70 miles an hour to not see this, and the next thing you know, five correct. cars are involved. Exactly correct. Hmm. Does do, Is there any evidence that these type of kind of wolf pack approaches, you know, reduce accidents? Uh, is there evidence that they're, that they're making the roads safer at all? I've never seen any credible evidence to that effect. I mean, it seems like if you wanted to use these tactics, just back it up with research. I mean, I, I know when Utah raised us the speed limits, because uh, there's a lot of open desert here, and if you used to have to go 55 miles an hour through the desert and even around the salt flats where the racing, all the racers go race their cars, but you got to go 55 miles an hour through that, um, I, I know that they were testing it for years to to see uh, that what they would raise the speed limit and they'd be testing it and see what was happening. And it, now it's to the point that you can go 80 miles an hour through these places, and people and, are still going 85. And Utah has done uh, pretty good studies. Uh, I very much respect the Utah Department of Transportation uh, because they've studied the places that they went to 80, and they were one of the first states to do that. Yeah. And the the crash rates uh, did not go up, and, and neither did the speeds. Right, right, right. The, the speeds only changed a couple miles an hour, and that's irrelevant to safety. Yeah, and and again, it's the the car, it, the traffic is moving, and those that don't feel as comfortable going eighty, they're pretty quickly going to get in the right hand lane, and those that do, go eighty. And it's I mean it's it, it's it's turning out to be a beautiful thing. So it's, it seems like it's not like you can't use research to make these decisions. It's just probably nobody. If you're not thinking about validating it, and all you're trying to do is raise revenue, you don't need research. We've just uh, initiated a new program for our uh, paid members. It's called uh, NMA Alerts, 
and someone who's a member can go on our site and uh, find the places that where the uh, commonly have speed traps uh, or uh, have roadblocks hmm. uh, where they they check you know registration insurance kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, really, I think about that, James. It's like a. I mean, there's so much. There's so much that we could talk about. Let's take a break. Come back. I want to get into the fact that are are, are police officers. Are they required? Do they have quotas? We've heard of quotas. Um, I just wanted to know if there's any real evidence of officers having quotas, so much money they got to raise or so many tickets they've got to do every month. Um, Is their job required to do that? Do they get performance reviews evaluated by that? Stick with us. Interesting stuff. Uh, Still ahead with James C. Walker. Again, he's walking us through... um, Traffic citations, traffic enforcement. Is it about money? Is it about safety? You know, our government might tell us it's both. But many times it just feels like it's about the money. We'll be back. Stick with us. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are uh, speaking with James C. Walker from the National Motorist Association, which is an organization that uh, originated in an effort to increase the speed limits, put the speed limits back to what the roads were built for uh, back in the 70s. And um, now they're taking on other issues, mainly kind of a watchdog, it seems like, against um, law enforcement as far as traffic enforcement. Are they are are we using traffic enforcement to actually increase safety? And I think every policeman would say yes, except it's also a lot about revenue. It's a billion-dollar industry. So, James, um, I, I, do you get a lot of pushback from the police officers, or do the officers themselves know it's about revenue? A lot of officers know it's about revenue, and they don't like to be assigned to go enforce speed traps uh, as road tax collectors. Um they feel it's a it's a bad use of their their talents. I mean, it also seems like it might be. Yeah, it would be instead of just setting these traps up, it would might be a better because you're just going to get, I guess, speeders, but uh, maybe people without seat belts on. Um, but they the, they need to be out moving around. They need to be. How many times have something happened to you where you're like, "Where's the cop that <laughs> could be looking at this?" But they're probably pulled over setting up a trap or whatever. Do, do according to what you know and the research you guys have been doing in your organization, are there ticket quotas for police officers? In many states and areas, uh, yes, there are. Most of them today are not uh, formal and written uh, because there's been a lot of backlash uh, against ticket quotas. But many places still do it kind of under the table. And I guess they're, they're, they assume to be a good officer you should be writing tickets. Whether it's for you know money gain and or but you need to be out there pulling people over. The problem with with the quota is the way it's uh, easy to fulfill a quota, whether written or unwritten, is to go to a speed trap area and write a whole bunch of tickets. It's easy to do. Yeah. Uh, to actually seek out and cite the the relatively small percentage of 
drivers that are actually doing something dangerous is a lot harder. Man, it's – and I, I guess – is that how you know if you've got a good town, a good city, a good officer that's empowered is if they're there to just talk you through it, make sure you're not doing stupid stuff? I mean because they don't always have to ticket you. No, warnings are equally and and some people say more effective than a ticket. Yeah. I boy, I love a good warning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, and particularly if you if the officer really understands the issue and educates the person, for instance, uh to pull somebody over who is uh blocking the left lane. Um and really should be over in the right-hand lane because they're traveling at speeds below the normal level. Yeah. Like that's, that. That's an educational ticket or warning that would really do some good. Yeah. But instead, they they don't pull them over. They pull the five people over that speed by him, you know, look at them funny and are mad. Well, and let me give you a really insidious uh, effect of that. Uh, the... Uh, research has shown over 75 years, I can prove in writing, that the safest place to set the speed limit is at the 85th percentile. You measure all the cars going by on a, on a nice day, find the point at which 85% are at that level or lower. <coughs> Excuse me. Round it off to the nearest five, and that's your limit. Hmm. So if 85% if are between 73 and 77, then 75 is the correct place to put the limit now let's post it at 65 and ticket at plus 10 so you're ticketing drivers at about 75 Hmm. they're the safest ones on the road they're at the bottom of the risk curve they have the smallest chance to have a crash yeah you're not you're not ticketing the slow ones or yeah you're ticketing the average (laughs) good driver you're ticketing the safest drivers on the road and to me that's perverse that is and again um, but uh, do they not know this data, or they just have other motives? Uh, the command officers and the Department of Transportation engineers who are willing to tell the truth know the data. Uh, the average officer might not. Wow. What are some other things we just ought to be informed about that we need to know about as fellow citizens? I mean, we want to be safe, but it also seems like most drivers want to be safe. They do, and most are safe. Yeah. The um, uh, the fatality rate today is is about 1.1 fatalities per 100 million vehicle miles traveled. I got my first license in 1960, and the rate was over 5 per 100 million vehicle miles. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Driving is very safe today. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, if you if you drive about 15,000 miles a year. Statistically, you'll be killed in a car accident about once every 6,000 years. Unbelievable. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's it's safer, and yet it, we also uh, see those signs now on the highways, 15 fatalities this year or whatever, tallying the fatalities. I mean, I guess that's educational. That's informational. But um, there really is nothing, I think, more powerful than a police officer being an educator. I agree with that. Instead of an enforcer. Especially when you're doing good stuff, when you're when you're being a good citizen, um, and you see other things that aren't being taken care of. Slowly, the public is becoming educated to uh, traffic enforcement for profits is wrong. 
What would you teach? You're, it sounds like you're fighting a cold, James. Yeah, I've. I've you got the gombu. Cold about two weeks ago, and I'm having trouble shaking it. That's that's good. We'll let you go in one second. What What would you? Anything else that you would want to educate us on? Just as far as I mean, I know your your association is trying to work on speed limits and um, red light camera issues. What are What are just some basic things that every citizen driving a car should know? And you and you want to tell them. They, uh, the average person could go to our site, motorist.org, and just learn a ton about how speed limits uh, and traffic lights should be engineered. And if they're engineered badly in your area, then get involved. Start talking to the officials and say, hey, this needs to be fixed. You it's also... Grassroots s- efforts that get it fixed in particular areas. You also suggest that we don't don't necessarily just pay every ticket. Go in and fight these tickets. Go in and fight the ticket so that you you can inform some of those in command and in the know more about what's happening out there. That's correct. If people fought their unfair tickets, the system would collapse because it costs a lot in court time to defend or prosecute uh, unfair tickets. Interesting. So that would force them to say, is this worth just doing this for money raising? Maybe and maybe they would adjust some of the parameters. Correct. We've had some decent success in Michigan. Uh, we've just passed a new set of speed limit laws here. We'll have some 75-mile-an-hour rural interstate shortly, 65 on rural two-lane highways. Hmm. And some rules were changed that will end a lot of city speed traps. Yeah, so you're not advocating anarchy. You're just saying, let's be real about this. Let's trust people a little bit more, and let's not use enforcement as a means of money generation. Correct. Good stuff. Well, James, take care of your health, my friend, and uh, thank you for your time. James, again, um, is uh, the executive director of the National Motorist Association Foundation. You can find out more about their organization, motorist.org. It really is an interesting uh, website to go look out and uh, learn more about what your state is doing and uh, how you can get more involved in making the roads safer for everybody else. Isn't it good just having people, you know, that's his love right there, taking care of this, been doing it for years, and uh, informs the rest of us. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, helping you live healthier, happier lives. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Now everybody's everybody's got their stories coming yep. out about been pulled over. Been pulled over. But again, we Jeff and I were just talking about there is no better moment than when they do pull you over and then they yeah. they cite you, they educate you, but they they might just give you a fix it ticket or whatever. I or, they, a warning. or a warning, they let you go. I rolled through a stop sign at a uh, shopping center. And apparently right across the street underneath the tree in the shade was a, a, a police officer. Didn't even see him. Yeah. And so I just turned and went down the road. He chased me down, pulled me over, walks up to the car, looks at me, and he goes, did you see that stop sign you rolled through back there? And I went, well, yeah. And then he, like, 
You mean that roll sign? He stopped and grabbed his radio because immediately some call came in. He goes, don't do it again. And walked away. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah." Sounds like this happened in the South. He was under a tree in the shade, Mm -hmm. sipping on some lemonade. julep. I didn't mention any beverage. Okay. okay. Yeah. We like to just embellish it a bit. Yeah, that was a good day for me. Any? Uh, what else should we be talking about? You're, you're big on marriage. Love it. It has something to do with some of the professional pursuits of your day-to-day life. <laughs> yes. When Tenny Owens said she was trapped in a loveless marriage, she meant it. Owens, 65, was denied a divorce from her millionaire husband of 39 years after he told a U.K. judge their minor disagreements were simply a part of married life. In the case last year, Owens had petitioned one court for a divorce, complaining of continued beratement from her husband following her uh, her affair in 2012. Wow. Hugh Owens, 78, admitted he often teased his wife in a very loud voice, but he said he'd forgiven her infidelity and believed the pair should remain married into old age. The judge sided with the husband, noting that her complaints were the kind to be expected in marriage and an exercise in scraping the barrel. (laughs) <laughs> like the bottom of the barrel. I, I hope. I, I'm not sure what that wow. means. During an appeals court hearing Tuesday, Tinney, who has slept uh, apart from her husband for several years now, lives away from their uh, their home, and she says she feels invo- uh, unloved, isolated, and alone. A judge responded, it is not grounds for divorce if you find yourself in a wretchedly unhappy marriage. Wow. Is this in the United States? No, it's in the UK. I was like, where the... That provoked Tinney's lawyer to call for the law to change to introduce a no-fault divorce in line with current thinking and social norms. He says it's unfair for a judge to ask his client to live separately from her husband for five years before again filing for divorce without his consent, giving their ages. Huh. Trapped. So he says wretchedly unhappy marriage is no reason for a divorce. Yeah, get in line. (laughs) That's so negative. Yeah. That's so true. There's got to – yeah, there are – I mean, so make it happier. Well, I would if he would. Right. Oh, boy. We can't even get started there. Well done, Terry. Just like the verbiage from the judge. The cynic in you <laughs> found a story that you like. Good stuff. We'll take a break, friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the program. Dr. Matt here with Terry South and Jeffrey Simpson. The gang. The gang of three. And we're still, you know, getting over... Past stories of tickets and the unfair practice of policing. By the way, if you were in a gang, yeah. would you be like the hard-boiled, just thug, or would you be skipping and dancing down the streets, snapping your fingers? I'd do both. Pow! And, like, you mean like the jets the sharks or the jets i don't know yeah i'd probably i'd i'd be more of the dancing jet or shark i'd totally bling it up i'd be wearing lots of bling i'd have dancing shoes on hmm. i'd drive a nice car but you could still be intimidating oh yeah okay 
I, I intimidate a lot of people. You should see husbands when they come in to see me with their wives. Well, they see you as the enemy because it's never their idea to be there. Well, that's wrong. I I think not you, probably in every case, but you you probably most <laughs> cases it's the woman that's instigated the meeting yeah, with you. It, and the yeah, couple. your wife, for example, she calls all the time. Yeah, I just have more power in the relationship, and I nah, I don't want to do that. Ooh, <laughs> I hope she wasn't listening. Nah, she's listening. Okay, I'll send it to her. Occasionally she does. Business. It surprises me. I'll get a text like, "What?" Then, oh, I, have good. To, then I have to pay she's the price smart. when I go home. Yeah. She's super smart. I, on the other hand, can say anything I want. Your wife is sleeping. No, if she's lucky. Not at, not at this time. Um, we got a lot to talk about today. A, a lot of empty news <coughs> out there, including a pigeon mm. that is uh, now, you know, colluding with criminals in prison. So we'll see how that goes. The pigeon man. Joey the Pigeon. Mm-hmm. He's a pigeon. We'll also, for um, Black History Month, be talking about the – in World War II, the, the black African-American GIs that and what they did. About 16 million, I think, soldiers fought from the United States and one million of them were African-American. And you probably don't know much about those people. But they played an important role and were very much shut out. From press coverage and from information about what they did. So we'll be talking with a researcher and a history teacher about their incredible um, offering and really how it led to the civil rights movement. They became the power behind the civil rights movement when they came back after the war. Mm -hmm. So power there. We'll get into that story. Also, a little bit later, uh, we'll be talking with Caitlin Thomas, little known uh, presidential facts, Mm -hmm. just because it is the month where we celebrate President's Day. I read a, there's whatever office deals with sort of the HR situation for the federal government. They yeah the, they, the office of OS it's something. I don't know if it's that one. The one oh, that was hacked. Yeah, there's another office. You know, there's like yeah. fifty offices. The HR for office, every little tiny thing. Um, but they have they they kind of keep track of these. Every time there's a federal holiday, there's a law that has to be passed so that it is a federal holiday. Hmm. And the federal holiday, the law that goes for. President's Day is still Washington's birthday. Oh, really? Yeah, they had no one. It's not actually changed. Just sort of something socially. It's like okay, now it's President's Day. Well, yeah, the day it. is actually Washington's birthday. How cool is that? The, I mean, he deserves books. that. Let's give yeah. him that. But now we, I think we need another one for Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Oh yeah, why not have two? I think they're too close. Yeah. But- well, I think what we could do is just give us the Friday. Right. For for his yeah. birthday. Friday and for Monday. Lincoln boom, and boom. then Monday for Washington and yeah. we're all set. And then again, think about how much more deeply we would be reading the history of the presidents during that weekend. Right. Mm, we'd probably just go see more movies. I went bowling, so. Mm. Yeah. You saw – I mean you saw like three movies over the holiday weekend. <laughs> yeah. It was a busy weekend. Somebody's got to keep Hollywood up. But in between all of that movie watching, I'm sure you were thinking about – George Washington. I was reading biographies on presidents. Mm. Yeah, during the commercials? Mm-hmm. I'm reading about Garfield now. My no. cat? Yeah, great cat, by Different the way. type of Garfield. Different President Garfield. Oh, nice. Uh, it's also, just so you know, it's, it's chili day. Today's the day we celebrate chili and the great, whether it's con carne or without carne. Mm. Somebody let the goat out. 
Uh, chilly. It's chilly day. <laughs> curling, it's also curling is cool day. So if no. you're into curling, this is the day you get to shine. My hair's not quite long enough for that yet. No, we're talking about curling, the air quote sport. I'm not involves, familiar with. It involves brooms. It's an activity. It's like bowling. Yeah. It's team bowling, really. Yeah. With a broom. Which is a really odd thing. Have you ever done it? You ever, you oh, ever yeah. curled? I've no. I've I've, <laughs> I've hurled. Okay. Never curled. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've done. I've done both. They <laughs> need to make like a big mess right before that event starts, so that while yeah, while, so while they're, they're doing sweeping. it, they can mm-hmm. sweep it all up. You got to see the progress. Yeah. Um, and Terry's always bragging about how he's a curler. No, I just went once. My wife on our first date. But you wear those funny little curling. spiked shoes. That's weird. No, there's no spike shoes. Oh, aren't there? No, actually, they give you. Uh, I was just wearing like boots. Yeah, like, like, some, like just, hip waders. And and I was able. It was you know it was in the winter, so I was wearing like some some winter type boots. But they had uh, like a little uh, a rubber toe insert mm-hmm. you put over the toe. Oh, so you could drag that as you. Oh, cool. Yeah, tried not to die on the. I fell down all the time. It was embarrassing. Oh, that's horrible. But wife thought it was funny. But I'm sure you looked good in those UGG boots. Yeah, I looked good. <laughs> you know how well curling could translate into infomercials? How? Hmm? Here's what the ice looked like before we used our patented broom bristles. Yeah. It's just a Swifter commercial. Yeah. It totally is. Yeah. I haven't thought about it that way. Or a Zumba, really. Could be. Maybe someday you'll just, a, a you Roomba. won't even have it. A Roomba. A Roomba. Yeah. Zumba's Zumba. the exercise. It could be Zumba, too. I've been doing There's Zumba, There's a lot of too. stretching Zumba Roomba. Yeah. Oh, now that's a, that's a vacuum. Okay, so we'll get to all that fun. More empty news ahead, but let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine said on Wednesday that she is open to using a subpoena to investigate the tax returns of President Donald Trump in order to ascertain potential connections to Russia. Collins is on the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is looking into Russian interference in the election last year. Collins said on Maine Public Radio that she would hope for voluntary cooperation but would be open to the subpoena if necessary. She also said that she would be calling for former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn to testify as to what the whole Russian wow. thing's about. See, Collins has to play to the liberal side of her Maine audience. Right. Mm-hmm. And her audience in the state of Maine, which are both represented. Senator John McCain secretly traveled to northern Syria last week. The Wall Street Journal reports on Wednesday the senator visited what reportedly orga- was reportedly organized to help from the U.S. Uh, military, predominantly in an effort to allow McCain to speak with American officials and Kurdish fighters leading the charge to push ISIS, ISIS militants out of Raqqa, which is considered their headquarters, their stronghold. And so he's over there in northern Syria. Mm. Just- talking to the people. Senator Senator Tom Cotton on Wednesday became the latest Republican lawmaker to face fiery constituents at a town hall. This time the conversation stronghold of Springdale, Arkansas. It's a conservative stronghold, excuse me. At least 2,000 people attended the event with many carrying signs asserting that they were not paid protesters and others chanting, do your job. (laughs) Dozens of people waited in line to ask questions. Cotton was confronted by constituents like Katie McFarland of Springdale, who told the senator that without the Affordable Care Act, I will die. Yeah, that was intense. Cotton said the Republicans are working on a replacement plan that will keep her covered, but when she pressed for details, he didn't really have any to share. Yeah, I got nothing new for you. Nothing here. In Wisconsin, constituents of Speaker of the House Paul Ryan are concerned that he has 
has had no town hall meetings and none are really scheduled, so they have placed a missing persons ad in the lost and found section of the Madison Craigslist and bought billboards demanding a meeting with their representative. See, this is this I think could backfire. Yeah. Because everybody's mad about the health care, Obamacare, because they were supposed to repeal and replace. Right. Except it's an easy no-brainer to just leave as many pieces as you can in it and then have very few changes. Sure. But the other side of it is they've talked so badly about it for, what, 60 votes I was telling well, you yeah, the other that day? Nine that years. if you leave any piece of it, then you're just half-stepping. You're not doing your job. Well, but you... You, the majority of people, 65%, 70% of the people want most of the things to stay, certain things to stay. So those things have to stay. A large part of... Or you've just cut your neck, unless, right? Unless a large part of the people that voted you into office don't want Obamacare to exist in any way, shape, or form. Well, but I don't think that that's true. I think these they people just want way. to get on that new yelling channel they could that you were that. talking that's about. That's a great channel. The Washington Yellowmatic at the yeah. Washington Post. Give Love it. Look. It's on our Twitter account. Uh, finally, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. He's kind of been off the radar for a while. Yeah. He was... Uh, he ran for office, then dropped out, and then all of his campaign He was expenses, in the transition team. His campaign expenses were paid off by Trump. Yeah. And uh, there were stories of him going to McDonald's for Trump. He was just kind of doing things for was, Trump. Yeah, an errand delivery guy. It's like, you're still the governor of New Jersey. Why aren't you, you know, governoring or whatever, <laughs> doing your job? So it says he's looking for something to do a little bit more deserving of his signature Jersey attitude. The divisive governor is reportedly among the candidates to replace Mike Francesa as the host of WFAN 660 AM. The biggest sports talk show in the nation, and right out of New York City. Really, replacing him on that show, uh, the biggest sports talk program. Yeah, it's it's the the basically the, the what's considered the founding sports talk radio program in the nation. Well, wow. And they want does, Frances is going to retire. Does he know what he's talking about? He's a big sports fan. I mean, well, literally and figuratively. You know, when it comes to knowledge and what he says, his son says he goes finally. He goes, you've been talking incessantly, and I have to listen to it all the time. Now someone's going to pay you to do it? That's crazy. This is the same son. Is this the son that didn't that didn't one of his sons embarrass him or something well, on stage? No, I think that was uh, Giuliani. Oh, that was Giuliani. Wait, he's literally a sports fan, so like he'll go to the events and just fan people? No, he likes the games. That's a thing, by the way. Well, only in certain countries. Hmm. So and yeah, harems. He, he could be... A sports talk radio host. That is weird. Yeah. So president or talk show host? Yeah. Bad choice. I don't know. I think I think the the secondary job that he might be up for is a better choice. Just better stre- than just stress wise and not have to deal with like serious issues all day. Yeah. Better than errand boy. Go to McDonald's and get a McCafe shake. Yeah, the whole emasculation <laughs> of uh, Mr. Christie there was. <laughs> Well, I think a lot of it goes back to his wife's eye roll. Do you remember that? She gasped him trying to get a photo op after the inaugural after uh, Trump won the election. He's like pushes his way to the front of the crowd to get a handshake. (laughs) Excuse me. Coming through. Coming through. Talk show host. Talk show host. Hey, Donald Trump's ratings, according to CNN, are dropping. Yes. Which he would just call fake news. Right. Because but he's down to 38 (laughs) percent. Favorability. Yeah. Then I saw a poll that said there's 8% that says that uh, we'll avoid a war. 
8% think that are, are comfortable in saying that in the next four to eight years that we will avoid any kind of oh, military conflict. 8%. 8%. So that's moving up. <laughs> yeah. That's From the 8% the right there. They're like, wow, only 8%. I mean, people are like, I'm fairly sure I have good confidence that. And then there's, there's only 8% that are just completely confident that this isn't happening. So. That's crazy. Hey, so did you hear about this uh, pigeon? A pigeon is caught smuggling a mobile phone into a Brazilian prison. Mm. That's a smart pigeon. Uh, The guards spotted the inmate on the ground trying to catch the bird. You know, they always pay attention when you're chasing a pigeon on the ground. Right. It's pretty obvious. At the pokey. Uh, Guards at a Brazilian prison caught a pigeon with a mobile phone attached to its body. Officials said the bird was trying to deliver the phone to prisoners. The guards intervened when they spotted an inmate trying to catch the pigeon. And then they uh, inspected the pigeon more closely. One guard found a small pouch that contained a phone and a battery. Hmm. Hmm. The incident occurred at Franco da Roca prison in the state of Sao Paulo. It's unclear who used the bird to try to smuggle the device in. And uh, – but that's a smart bird, right? Right. You know what? what? This sounds familiar. What do you mean? Almost like – hold on. Oh, I've got it. It's a it's a new movie. Oh, a new a new. I've got the trailer here. A if movie you want to from Hollywood. To a Hollywood movie. Yeah. Um, Do you want to hear the trailer? Sure. Guards at a Brazilian prison caught a pigeon with a mobile phone attached to its body. Officials said the bird was trying to deliver the phone to prisoners. The guards intervened when they spotted an inmate trying to catch the pigeon. But when they inspected more closely, one guard found a small pouch that contained a phone and battery. The incident occurred at the Franco da Rocha prison in the state of Sao Paulo. It is unclear who used the bird to try and smuggle the device in. The pigeon who was caught smuggling a mobile phone into a Brazilian prison after God spotted an inmate trying to catch the bird. Rated R. Wow. Wow. Very descriptive. Very descriptive. It's, it's almost like they just tore the headline out and just used the headline. And they just, well, like word for word, almost exactly yeah. what you just said. That is the longest title I think I've ever heard of a movie. Wait, what That's, was it again? It's uh, it's it's pigeon is caught smuggling a mobile phone into a Brazilian prison after guards spotted an inmate trying to catch the bird. You know what, though, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad that that's the title because so few movie titles these days capture the essence of what the movie it's is so all true. about. Like fences. Yeah, there was no figures. fence building in that movie. No. Uh-huh. And Lion. I, hidden, hidden figures? I yeah. could see them on the screen. They were yeah. right there. Lion? Huh? Where were the lions? I mean, I've seen the movie. Lion. It's not even... It's, well, I can't give it away, but lion. There's not even a lion in the whole movie. So this movie sounds like it has a great script. Yeah. Just like you said, ripped right out of the the news. Because I was going to text my wife to see if she wanted to go see that movie. But it's such a long title. And the predictive I, spelling just threw you all mm-hmm. off. Pigeon is caught smuggling a mobile phone into a Brazilian prison after guards spotted an inmate trying to catch the bird. Rated R. 
Rated R. And why do they need to make it rated R? I'm so sick of that. Sure, it's a prison movie, but it's swearing, also a pigeon movie. Swearing. Um, there are a lot of unclothed pigeons <laughs> and shower scenes, <laughs> pigeon shower scenes in a they, water fountain. Is it violent? It didn't I seem think violent. one of the pigeons gets shivved, and, and I think that's how they're able ah. to fit the phone into his little pouch. It creates a little pouch. Mm. And there's some blood. Sad. Sad. Any way you look at them. Well, at least Hollywood's pulling through for us, folks. They've got some great movies. We are going to take a break. When we come back, we will be talking about the uh, incredible story of the African-American GIs of World War II. Fighting for democracy abroad when they didn't even have the full rights at home. That's heroism. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Until the last decade, the contributions of African-American soldiers in World War II barely registered in America's collective memory of that war. This despite the fact that among 16 million U.S. soldiers who fought in World War II, there were about 1 million African-American soldiers. They fought in the Pacific, and they were part of the victorious army that liberated Europe from Nazi rule. Maria Kohn, a German history teacher and scholar, has done some in-depth research on the impact that African-American soldiers had during World War II and is on the line with us to, this morning to uh, share some more of what she has learned. Maria Kohn, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, Matt. Thank you for having me. What a fascinating topic. I'm, I, there's so much about World War II and the heroism and this incredible generation. But when we get into the African-American GIs, it really is uh, – it's amazing because they, they were fighting abroad to spread democracy when they didn't even have the full benefits of democracy at home. Yeah, it is really an amazing story, and I discovered it when I did my research for my uh, dissertation, and I wanted to write about the American impact on Germany. And, and of course, what I discovered was, of course, also that there was um, a quite a bit of racism towards African-American soldiers. But what surprised me the most, I think, was to learn that the U.S. military arrived in Germany, my home country, right, to liberate that country from Nazism with a segregated army and that this army was not integrated until the early 50s. And that was just a real, it startled me. It was, a counter, you know, it was counterintuitive. And that's when I started digging a little bit more and trying to learn about it. Wow. I mean, yeah, they're entering Germany um, with a segregated army, and yet they're trying to teach that all people are equal. Wow. Exactly. And that was sort of a really... He said, how did that work? And initially I was, you know, because I'm a German historian, I looked at it from the German perspective. But then it was, I think it was 1994, I gave a talk at the American Historical Association meeting in New York. And it was a panel on German racism in this period, right? This sort of encounter for the first time with large number of people of color and how afraid people were of black soldiers. And um, after the panel, um, four or five um, African-American veterans came to me, and they were like, wow, you know, this is very interesting, young lady, what you're doing here. But, um, you know, they were part of the Black Panther uh, tank division. They said, 
for us, Germany was like a press, you know, this liberation. It was wonderful. And, you know, our problems were mostly American racism at the time. Hmm. And then they said to me, you know, nobody has told our story. Can you do that? And I said, well, you know, I'm not an American historian, but I... After a while, I finally said, why don't I do this? And that's how it all started. Wow. And you put this in your 2010 book, Breath of Freedom? Yes, yes, right. In that book, I sort of, you know, I'd written some articles, but in that book, then we put it together, together with a friend, and looked at it in terms of the long term, not just the 40s and 50s, but also the 60s and 70s. And mm. um, and he looked also at the visitor. He His, his research is on Martin Luther King coming to Berlin and the impact of Angela Davis, sort of just sort of looking at, um, you know, a 30, 40-year encounter of German society with the African-American freedom struggle. Wow. Talk to us about, um, give us some of the history of the tan soldiers. That's what the black press affectionately called these African-American troops, right? That's correct. Um, the, um, you know, the, the there was, of course, initially some resistance among African-American uh, civil rights activists, whether black soldiers should sign up and volunteer for service. They had fought in World War One and had hoped that that would bring democracy. And when they returned, many of them were lynched. There was a lot of violence against black soldiers. Mm. And so a lot of civil rights activists, African-American civil rights activists, said, we're not going to just, you know, immediately say, yes, we will fight. We need to get some, you know, assurances from the government that this will improve our situation at home. So they really got on board um, encouraging using African-American newspapers like the Chicago Defender or the Pittsburgh Courier and saying that this is another opportunity for us to show that we are real Americans. Um, but also when we wear the uniform, that's a sign that we are real men, right? And that this is something we need to do to prove to America that we are fully part of America, and that's, you know, that just became part of the double V campaign, right? We fight for democracy abroad, but we also fight for democracy at home. Mm. And they really saw that as very intimately connected, right? By doing this, um, all of America would become a better society. But then they were, they were still segregated in every way, even down to their own blood banks. That's right. You know, the civil rights activists, of course, wanted integrated um, units and integrated battalions and divisions. Um, but the military press, um, they were very much against that. You know, Secretary of War Stimson and Army Chief of Staff Marshall, they saw this as disrupting um, morale and undermining morale of the white soldiers. And they said war is not a time for social experimentation. That's how they put it. And basically, and that's what Marshall said, you know, the army cannot solve what America has not solved for itself yet. Mm. And so they thought it would create too many complications, but there were also many who just could not imagine that black and white soldiers fought side by side. There had been a number of studies that had been done in the 30s that sort of suggested uh, in a very mean way, by the, you know, this was done by the military, that black soldiers are not equipped to fight in sort of complicated new technological warfare, um, that if they could be used, at best they could be used as laborers or in transportation units. And of course, that's exactly what happened, right? They got the permission to, um, to, fight, to be part of the army, but they were to serve in segregated units. And as you probably also know, the Tuskegee Airmen, um, in order to make sure that pilots were not trained side by side, white and, and black pilots, they created a separate unit, the Tuskegee 
airmen who trained by themselves in Tuskegee, Alabama, mm. and they became, of course, very, very famous um, for their exploits. And, um, and again, in the war in Germany, flying with white um, bombers and protecting white bombers. Um, so, so these concessions were made, but you know, there was very little willingness, Matt, to go all the way, so to speak, right? To sort of say, okay, let's just do this. Yeah. I mean, and, oh, it's yet, and then the Tuskegee, the, the Tuskegee Airmen did. They, they've, they gained such acclaim in, the, in, in their work. It, I guess the, what was the big concern? Um, one of the things I know you mentioned is just leadership. So the idea that a black, you know, officer would eventually lead white soldiers, they couldn't fathom that idea. Exactly. And that was, of course, one of the main concerns, right? I mean, it, it was this very simple racism, I would say, kind of like that we, they just cannot imagine it. Because remember, a lot of the training camps were in the South. A lot of the officers were Southerners. But this was also an issue for North, Northern officers, right? That, right. Americans hadn't lived. There was no real living together between white and black, right? So it's very hard to imagine how that could be successful. So I think there was a lot of... Um, anxiety just, you know, to be in the same space even together. And, of course, one, one big fear would be, you know, say if um, a, a black soldier was promoted and he would be a captain and all of a sudden he would be in charge of a, of a platoon, right? Right. And lead a platoon of white men into, and that was, I think, the military fear that the white soldiers would rebel, that they would not do this. And, we, you know, we have seen cases of that um, um, in you know, even on the smallest, they said it's just not going to happen. They're never going to obey. So you know, you, so you they had black units, but they were all commandeered by white officers. Man, and and and, and no matter what, even the hierarchy of the black units eventually were always white. Exactly, exactly. So all their officers were, you know, they had lieutenants, first lieutenants, and second lieutenants. But you know, once you get and you had maybe captains, but above up, that is always white. Hmm. The real leadership of the military, you know. So the Jim Crow laws of the United States that that African Americans were fighting against that were still alive and well, just as alive and well in the military. In fact, more so. Exactly, and you know, and I think the other one to sort of consider, Matt, is that um, because the army, um, and this was, of course, what gave civil rights activists a real um, a tool to to fight harder. When the army decided to keep it segregated, right, they literally federalized Southern Jim Crow laws for the whole country. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because now that segregation also ruled in Northern training camps or in Western training camps, right? Right. So that segregation and the rules of separation were taken to the North. At the same time, Northern African Americans were sent South to train in training camps in the South, and for let me say for um, an African American who had college education already, who had lived in New York or Philadelphia, um, his experience of segregation is of course a very very different one than coming to the South. Right. So you had a tremendous um, within America, I would say, sort of a movement of people, but also ideas and perceptions and experiences. Right. That also shook up a lot of certainties, right? So that for African Americans in the North, they said, "Oh my God, it's so much worse in the South." And a mm-hmm. lot of those men really became, you know, fighters for civil rights after the war. And just the same when a Southerner was then sent, perhaps north to train somewhere, or then to send abroad, where 
there surely was racism in England and France and in Germany, but there was no this sort of Jim Crow color line that they were familiar with, right? That sort of really shook things up, and I think that's really contributed to this new um, emerging consensus or consciousness, right, about oh, maybe things don't have to be the way they are right now. Maybe things can change. Yeah, so it, looked, it, was, it felt like a step or two back, but it really actually stirred the pot enough that it, it, it probably created the energy to, to really make the changes that needed to be made. Right, and again, and then because it also sort of exposed that, um, you know, because in America we've always had this promise of total equality, but we hadn't caught up with it, right? And mm-hmm. I think by taking on this leadership, uh, in you know, in the world, really, right, to sort of fight evil Nazi, evil racism, and liberate the people of Europe, um, and asking African Americans GIs to come along to help in the struggle, right? It 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 could not, but you know, say to people, "Wow, something is just not right here," right? Mm-hmm. And 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 it really, I think it empowered a lot of people to do serious, serious thinking, and I. I think that's something we also forget sometimes. You know, the African American Civil Rights Movement in that period was tremendously um, international. Right? They they knew what was going on yeah. in the colonies. They understood what was going on in other parts of the world. Right? So they um, they were able to sort of become part of a very international conversation about right about civil rights and what does freedom mean and what do what do we what do we mean by justice? Right? Right. This is it's amazing too, and they and then they come back and they become they become the informed uh, soldiers of the civil rights movement as well. The, those that can move it forward, the manpower um, for the civil rights movement. Powerful insight and history. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue to discuss the incredible uh, service of uh, African American GIs in World War II and really the movement um, that was furthered because of that in the civil rights movement. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are discussing African-American GIs of World War II fighting for democracy abroad and uh, also fighting for democracy at home. They're out there fighting a war with racist, you know, Germany. Come on. And yet they're facing racism at home. And who better to help us sort through this? Then Mary Hun, who is a German history teacher and scholar at Vassar University and um, has also uh, written many books. Her book, G.I.s and Fräuleins, was published in 2002. Um, also, uh, she wrote a book. Um, and again, Maria, the, the name of the book is Breath of Freedom from in 2010. That was released that talks about um, these tan soldiers, as they were called by the black uh, media back in the day. Maria, thank you for being with us again. Thanks for having me. This is good learning. And I think, boy, just the struggle that they were going through. Tell me, as a German and as a as a German historian, what what impact did it have on Germany? Well, I think the impact for Germany, first of all, 
as I, you know, we, my, my friend Martin and I, who wrote this book together, we dedicated uh, the book to the black soldiers who were part of that struggle to liberate our country because I would have not been born into a free country had it not been for their sacrifice. And, you know, in, in, in all these celebrations of the greatest generation, these men were just not there. So, mm. I mean, writing the book was sort of my thank you um, for them having done that. Um, there, there are, of course, African-American soldiers are still safe in Germany. Um, they were part of a, a huge effort by the American government between 1945 and 1955 to democratize Germany, um, to return it to democracy, and um, as part of the occupation by showing them, you know, examples of American democracy. But they were also sort of in more informal ways. I think they brought... Um, uh, you know, Colin Powell, who was interviewed um, when this book was made into um, into a film and or into a documentary, and um, who actually gave us the title for the book because he, in an interview, um, had called Germany a press of freedom. Hmm. And he went there in the late fifties, right? So that, um, but the point he made in the in that conversation was um, the black soldiers were also press of freedom for for Germans, right? Because we could see. Um, different culture, um, um, a different expression of America. And, of course, for a lot of Germans, that was very attractive, right? African-Americans brought new music forms, right. Jazz, right? And jazz had, of course, been forbidden by the, under the Nazis, right? So here these African-American GIs come back, and they bring their trombones, and they bring their huh. trumpets, and they join German jazz clubs and play with young German, you know, teens just eager to just, Heat it up. What to them was the, uh, the essence of American culture, right? And of course, for my generation and in the 70s, you know, it was the sound of Philadelphia and it was soul music. And, you know, this, this again, you know, having um, all that stuff is, of course, also available to teenagers across Europe. But when you are, you live in Germany and you have all these American GIs around, um, that culture is lived in front of your eyes. And that's different than watching it on TV or listening just to a to a record, right? Mm -hmm. um, or where you hear the music in a discotheque or something, right? But you can actually go to a discotheque or go, go to a club and you see an African-American who's bringing the newest dance steps from, I don't know, Philadelphia. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it's just a different sort of experience. And I think it, 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 um, it allowed Germans, West Germany, right, uh, to, of course, they were not in East Germany, um, to sort of encounter society with, uh, that was much, much more... Um, um, how do you say, um, diverse than our own country, right? Germany was still very white in the 40s and 50s, right? And in a way, it helped Germans, I think, come to grips with what a multi, multiracial, um, multidiverse society looks like, even if there were a lot of problems still with it, right? But you get to watch it in a, in a very, very different context. So were I were, think were they more revered then? Were they, I mean, it, was it easier, do you think, for a soldier to want to stay in Germany and be kind of... Uh, just, I mean, more of a novelty that's praised than uh, than the history that they had been living in the United States. Well, exactly. And that's what you, you know, when you um, read about the experience of African-Americans in Germany, and that's what they talk about, right? This sort of 
um, there's this wonderful quote by William Gardner Smith, who wrote this wonderful book, um, The Last of the Conquerors, where he, and he also wrote for the Pittsburgh Courier, so we have all these newspaper articles by him, but also a, a novel he wrote after he returned from Germany. And he basically said, well, you know, the Germans, they stare at us as well, but it's because they have never seen a black person before. <laughs> where in America, people stare at us with disgust. Yeah. And, and he said it was just a different... And, of course, he also understood that a lot of that was, of course, sort of exoticization, right, if you have never seen a black person before, right? But, you know, there is that, that, that feeling, right? And that's what, you know, when you, these people who have been interviewed, again, for this documentary or people we interviewed for the book, of being able to go to any restaurant. And, of course, there would not be any signs that said no plaques allowed or only for whites or no water fountains. You know what I mean? Mm. It was just everything was open. And I think it was that experience. And I think the other one, Matt, to sort of consider is that in 1945, right, or during the war, 75% of soldiers, African-American soldiers, were still from the South, right? So if they say they came from a small town in, in Tennessee or Mississippi, and then they're being sent to Germany and they go to Frankfurt or they go to Berlin, and then they're in a completely different universe, right? Yeah. It just changes your whole understanding of yourself and your own place in your world, right? to be for the first time in a society where there are no signs like that and where you can go anywhere and nobody can arrest you, right? Or maybe even fall in love with a white woman. Right. And you can't get lynched, right? No. To be free. To be free, to feel. And that's what you read again and again. You know, I felt it was my first time to feel free or to breathe freely. And, and again, that's why Colin Powell called it the press of freedom for right. me. You know, to, he was had come from... Um, you know, Fort Bragg and where he trained and then he was sent to Germany and and he said it was an amazing experience, right, to live in a completely white society but that had no legal racial barriers like that. Mm. How did this impact the civil rights movement after the war when they came home and many of these soldiers were back home mm-hmm. with that new vision, those new insights? What did they bring to the movement? But I think there was a tremendous increase in membership, for example, in the NAACP during the war already, right? A lot of the soldiers that were abroad, um, a lot of times so the, 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 the main, their main contact for um, officers would be clergy, right? African-American clergy that they, uh, that who talked to them. Um, but so a lot of soldiers already joined the NAACP while they were fighting abroad. Uh, there's, I think NAACP increased from 50,000 to 500,000 during the war years. Wow. But a lot of these soldiers, they returned home and they said, okay, we fought in Berlin to tear down the benches, no Jews allowed, but we didn't do that to return home to find all these signs that said no Negroes allowed. Right? Mm. So they said we came from the um, ETO, and I, uh, this is one of my favorite quotes, and ETO stands for European Theater of Operations, and we returned to the STO, the Southern Theater of Operations. Oh, wow. Right, so they're very much, and I think this is really important to, to sort of stress, right? But I think that the military had tremendous racism at the same time. I think the military taught soldiers a lot of skills, right? How to organize, how to be disciplined, how to, you know, organize a big event. Mm-hmm. Right? And so for, I think for, uh, again, you hear that again from a lot of African-American soldiers, they learned new skills and they either, a lot of them stayed in the military because the military offered social mobility they could not have at home. But even those who did not stay in the military and returned to the U.S., um, 
into civilian life, they had gained no skills. And they had uh, sometimes, you know, they had been able to attend classes while they were over there. Uh, they were more, more better educated. Some of them had taken college classes, right? So they were better at, at sort of coming home and saying, I can now speak for myself and I will not put up with this anymore, right? So you see African-American soldiers um, who open new NAACP chapters in their southern communities where they return. But they're also very, very active in the north, um, where, of course, there was tremendous discrimination in, 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 job mar- in, the, in the labor market, right? Negotiating with unions about, nice. hey, you can't say that these jobs are only for white people, right? After the war, of course, there was this, you know, tra- retraction in the economy. And also in sort of the informal segregation that we had in the north, right? Um, as one of my friends here who is a veteran, he's now in his 90s, <laughs> told me here in our own little town of Poughkeepsie where Vassar College is, he said, uh, you know, we didn't have formal segregation, but you know exactly what restaurant you were allowed <laughs> into and which one not, and yeah. what store would wait on you, right? So there's this informal segregation, you know, I think we should not underestimate that. And so, so there were so many venues, right? Um, the other one I think is important, and I, I, I haven't researched that, but other people have sort of looked at that. If you look at the, um, um, the way the NAACP could draw on World War II veterans to become um, plaintiffs in integration court cases, right? It was ah, yeah. it presented wonderful examples of American heroism and sacrifice. And here, here I think the father of in one of the, 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 the plaintiffs in Brown versus Board of Education was a World War II veteran, right? That uh, that these men could say, look, I fought for this country, and now you're telling me my child cannot attend the same school. Um, veterans were also very integral in in, um, um, in these um, lawsuits and that went to the civil, uh, to Supreme Court to fight integration of the universities, right? It was started there, right? So that um, the GIs arrived and said, okay, I have the GI bill. I want to go to university. And and, you know, University of Mississippi is, of course, a very famous one where they said never, ever will you, or in Alabama, right, where then these cases could be taken to the Supreme Court to force universities uh, to integrate their student bodies. Boy, they really are uh, priceless when you think about the, the many, many angles of this. Well, Maria, we um, we appreciate your time and your incredible work on, on Breath of Freedom suggest to everybody go just google the words breath of freedom you can go to the website breathoffreedom.org so much rich history there there is a a beautiful um documentary about the entire thing as well that you can download on many sites from amazon to um even youtube and and learn more about it we can't let these these lives be forgotten they've changed our world forever and uh have taught us, you know, a lot, uh, part of the greatest generation and really maybe one of the greatest parts of the greatest generation. So honored, honored. Maria Hone's her name. And uh, think about just the research of one professor that opened up this for all of us. And we honor her and appreciate her. We will take a break, folks. Come back and uh, wrap up our number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We hear the the history of the Black World War II 
veterans that did all this incredible stuff. I mean, how cool would it be to have a black uh, veteran president? But in, we we had Barack Obama, a president, um, and African American, for heaven's sakes, breaking every stereotype and every belief possible about um, leadership. So here's the question. What does it take to become president of the United States? Many are wondering how Donald Trump got in there. But the reality is Caitlin Thomas is here to help us learn some interesting facts about presidents, but also what it takes to become the president of the United States. You know, I learned. I mean, I think most people know this and I think I knew this, but I it it dawned on me as I was doing this segment, getting ready, how really it's. Not that hard to become to just qualify yourself. Well, I want to run for president. Now you just need a you got, television show. You gotta have lots of money. I think that's really what it is. And you just gotta have enough money to fund, or you gotta a lot of have gotta yeah. have a lot of powerful people under right. your belt. That's, I mean, that's all it you takes. Know? But that seems hard. I mean, to you get. do have to be thirty-five. Yeah, nothing you, wrong with that. You have to have been a resident of the United States for fourteen years, and you yeah, have to be a natural-born citizen. Yeah, I'd be born here. But like, there's some like. If he, like, well, if your parents are citizens and you're born in another country, you're still a citizen, so does that count? Yeah. But, like, you're over 35. And yeah, thank you. And you've been a resident. You were yes, born here, right? I so could run Matt for president. So Matt should be president. Yeah. <laughs> I'll fund your campaign. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. With my, you know. I think Well, advocate to pay off student loans. <gasps> I'd get rid of those. That's your platform. Yeah, that's all I would care about. So Matt Townsend's going to run for president mm-hmm. next. I think we Everybody. ought to have Jeff do it. Jeff's, Matt Townsend, 2020. Jeff's got some extra time. Jeff? Jeff's busy. Je- Jeff's free on Thursdays. <laughs> Just Thursdays. But, too, it's, it's also, I'm not sure we always get the best person in there as president. Well, it's just the one that wants to do the job. Right. I, I don't think I'd want that job, to be I honest with you. It. So I feel like it's really funny how critical we can get of these people, but most of us don't want that job. No. But, uh, and those so that do... Those probably aren't the ones you want. Right. I don't know, man. It's a weird thing. But I found some really funny. Speaking of, are these always the most qualified people? Everybody's got things. They've all got stuff. Like most people think that John F. Kennedy was the nation's youngest president Mm. because he was 43 when he was elected. But that's not accurate. In reality, Kennedy was the youngest president to be elected. But the youngest person to be president, however, was Theodore Roosevelt. He was oh. 42 when he became president following the assassination of William McKinley. See, that's ah. what it takes an assassination. Then you can mm. get in young. Yeah. Then you can get in young. Mm-hmm. John Adams visited Shakespeare's home in Stratford with Thomas Jefferson before they hated each other's yeah, guts. Right. They're still friends. While there, they chipped off a piece of one of Shakespeare's chairs as a souvenir. Well, how naughty. So they vandalized Shakespeare's home. I loved that one. That's crazy. Um, J- James Madison was our smallest president who stood at 5'4 and weighed around 100 pounds. Really? He was a lightweight. <laughs> he was a featherweight. So you could Talk be small about too. conservation. You could be short small. And skinny and you be don't president. have to. Yeah. You could be a pushover. One popular rumor is that Andrew Jackson taught his pet parrot how his pet parrot how to curse. Oh, really? And it was all fun and games until the parrot had to allegedly be removed from Jackson's funeral because oh. it wouldn't stop cursing. <laughs> he had a potty mouth. <laughs> Did somebody shut that parrot up? <laughs> Can you just imagine the president in his office just, like, teaching his parrot how to say bad words? Oh, that is bad. <laughs> Nixon had one of those, but I think it was called a uh, tape recorder. Yeah, that got him in trouble. Oh, yeah. Look out for those. Um, <laughs> while celebrating the 4th of July on the grounds where the Washington Monument would later stand, Zach, President Zachary Taylor snacked on a bunch of cherries and oh. washed it all down with iced milk. Mm. Gross. Um, but bacteria was present in neither the cherries or the milk, leading to his death a few days later. 
Wow, the old cherry ice milk death. Cherry ice milk death. I think that's more one of the more uh, unique ones. Don't mix those. Give us another one. We've only got a couple more. Time for a couple more. James Garfield was ambidextrous and could write in Greek with one hand and in Latin with the other at the same Holy time. Holy cow, his so brain. So he was bilingual ambidextrous. That's, yeah. That's, I think that qualifies. He's a bilinguidex. Um, upon the death of his law partner, Grover Cleveland became the legal guardian to his friend's 11-year-old orphan daughter. Ten years later, he married her. At the White House, making her the youngest first lady ever at the age of 21. Ew, creepy. <laughs> that's kind of weird. A little weird. See, oh, that's so we've weird. had, um, okay. so Donald Trump, He's, you know, has some scandal with yeah. young wives, but I mean, she was, I mean, it ain't so Robert bad. Cleveland's wife was still younger and he <laughs> raised her, so I think that's a little more scandalous, oh, right? Don't well, we Donald, always raise our spouse? Donald Trump worse. did say some interesting things about his daughter. Okay, it moving right worse. along. Good stuff, guys. Last one. Yeah. We Calvin go. Coolidge had a morning ritual of having someone rub Vaseline on his head while he ate breakfast. <laughs> You Where's my Vaseline? It's good luck. That's good. I, I think it was a leprechaun that he made do it. <laughs> I'm going to try it. How would you like to be that guy? There you go. Uh, good job, Happy Caitlin. President's Appreciate week. you. Caitlin Thomas is her name, and uh, helping us understand our presidents is her game. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hanging out with Jeffrey Simpson and Terry South, of course. Jeffrey's on the board. Good to have you back, man. When you were in Reno, it was only for a day. But, you know, just miss looking at your face. <laughs> just your face, though. Just your face. Uh, we got That's a great... about all you can see. That's it, yeah. And it, if, once I sit down, I'm standing now, but once I sit down and start and finish off my um, grapefruit, then, you know, I'll only see the top of your head. Sad day. We've got a lot to talk about. It is Chili Day today, uh, the day you celebrate chili, con carne, or without carne. Mm. Uh, I love chili. Then I realize how much salt there is in chili, and then... Chili with beans or Mm. chili without beans? Uh, I'll take both. I thought chili, yeah. yeah. Did you know that chili was... Yeah, chili without beans? I think that's what it is. Yes. Then they started adding beans. Traditional chili has no beans. It's beanless. And now it's weird to not have beans in your chili. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever had beanless chili. So you're really having chili con frijoles. Yeah. Con frijoles y carne o sin frijoles y carne. little uh, Spanish. We're doing a little bilingual show today. Vegetarian chili Mm. with nacho cheese. Jalapenos on top. I'm not a jalapeno guy. I am only in nachos. Really? And on J-Dogs. Ever since I saw jalapenos at the local 7-Eleven in a little tin hmm. at the uh, to put on nachos, I can't eat them now. I think they were fluorescent too, weren't they? Yeah, they were a weird – they were a weird green, a green that's not found in nature. One of those kind of greens. So today is chilly day. Also, curling is cool day. Not curling your hair, but curling the 
sport that Terry participates in once? Just once. That's um, all it took. We'll, we'll get into all of that fun. Plus, we got some more empty news to get over and get through because what not to do if your ATM machine's not working. Mm. Some really important advice. This is a life lesson. We like to give you every advantage in life we can. This woman, this woman needs to come and see you. No, totally. But I have a feeling her card wouldn't go through. The payment wouldn't? Yeah. <laughs> so we might have to decline her, and I'm afraid to find out what happens when you decline this woman. So we'll talk about uh, a Florida woman that introduced glue into the ATM process, hmm. see how that turned out for her. Um, plus, of course, other news. We'll be visiting with our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. We'll do a hero story of the day. And, uh, of course, the headlines from Terry South. Terry, let's start there. Where do we uh, – what do we need to worry about? Mexico lashed out at President Donald Trump's White House on Wednesday over recently announced immigration guidelines just hours before U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was due to arrive to meet with Mexican officials. Tillerson and Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly promised to walk through Mexican officials on Trump's latest immigration directives, which have already been met with anger in Mexico. Under the guidelines announced Tuesday by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, U.S. authorities would deport undocumented migrant immigrants to Mexico if they entered from there, regardless of whether they're actually Mexican citizens or not. Oh, boy. So, no matter... So, if you're coming from Iraq... And we deport you. You're going to Mexico. Well, no. If you if you're from, say, Guatemala, there are some that make that trek up through Mexico. Okay. And if they enter that way, they will go back out that way. We Whatever door you come in, we you won't go fly out. You home. You right. just walk back to Mexico, and then they deal with it. And Boy. Mexico's like, what? Hold it. What's going on? On Wednesday, the Trump administration reversed a directive issued in May of 2016 by former President Barack Obama, which said transgender students should be allowed to use bathrooms and locker rooms at public schools that match their chosen gender identity. Obama's guidelines were not legally binding, but advocates say it was needed to protect transgender students from being discriminated against. Now states and school districts will decide if federal anti-discrimination laws apply to gender identity. Hmm. And the Trump administration says that they're all about states' rights. They think the state should decide this. Yeah. That's, yeah. Many would say just leave it to the states, but some states aren't going to protect those rights. That would, that's what the people that are that's against this think. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we'll see. Uh, the latest Quinnipiac University, I'm always saying that wrong, so whichever, a uh, poll released Wednesday revealed that Americans have a pretty bleak impression of their new commander-in-chief. President Trump earned his lowest net approval rating since taking office. Just 38% approval of the job he's done so far, 55% of Americans disapproving. Americans didn't rate Trump's personal qualities much better. 55% say Trump is not honest. 55% say he lacks good leadership skills. 63% said that he's not level-headed. And 60% said that he does not share their values. Yeah. But he's lovable. Great actor. <laughs> so he's done a cameo in just about every movie. I'm guessing that would be in the realm of the fake news. Yeah. We may hear about that later on. Fake um, news. And finally, this story, February 11th. Police in North Carolina contacted by a runner who said that, that while on a run with two friends, he stepped on a nail that impaled his foot. The runner got a tetanus shot and is said to be doing fine. Another person, a hiker who was on the same trail, stepped on a nail the following Saturday. Huh. 
The police went to the trail and started going over, looking around, seeing what's going on. They initially found eight nails in an isolated area. But two days later, with a larger group using leaf blowers and metal detectors, they found what appeared to be 50 purposely placed nails on this popular hiking trail. It appeared someone took four-inch galvanized nails, hacksawed off the ends, and left them sticking out of spots along the trail about a half inch to two inches high, acting like spikes. After the locations were documented, the nails were then removed by authorities. Oh, boy. There's a popular race called the Assault on Black Rock Trail. Yeah. Which is, it climbs 2,000 feet up three and a half miles to the top of the summit before heading back down the other side. Uh, Based on estimates, they say 25% of that race route was compromised by these spikes. Eco-terrorism. Is that what that is? That's it's either people protesting the fact that people are walking up and down this mountain, yeah. or just people making mischief. I bet it's just nails. people that hate people that work out. See, that's why I don't run. <laughs> I've never had this happen to me, but there's all now. There's always the fear yeah. that I'm going to run over a nail, and that, not that, on a treadmill. So it, it could happen. You'd see the nail on the treadmill. It would be that would be worse because it's a conveyor belt, so it would just keep coming around. Yeah, but you, you would see it, right? I mean, a not po- be watching a, a, a show. Post on a website where I saw this story said, "See, exercise is dangerous." I'm telling you, it's better that I have never once found a nail in my lazy boy. Not once. It's a safe place. You, I have found three Cheetos. You could either look at it as exercise is dangerous, or come to the realization that humans can be horrible to each other. Yeah, either way, it's negative. Yeah. That's why I just think instead, watch a happy show on your Lazy Boy, eat some Cheetos. There you go. Creates enough chemistry in your body that nothing seems to matter. It numbs the pain. Have all your food delivered, never go outside. Yeah. Work from home. And die when you're 60. What's the big deal? It's either that or die being impaled on a nail. What's happening to this country? Or to you can't even go run a crazy race outdoors anymore without. It used to be truckers that would, when they were on strike, they'd throw the nails down on the freeway, and then that would mess up all the traffic. And truckers used to do that when they were battling unions and issues. Now it's eco terrorists. Not cool. Or bored teenagers. Yeah. Or, yeah, it could be. We don't know. We don't know. Uh, Florida woman. Listen to this. A woman, um, a Florida woman pours glue into the ATMs after her card repeatedly is declined. So she could go get a job and then make some money and put it on her on her card so it wouldn't be declined. Or you could just go buy some glue and uh, I guess gum up all the ATMs. This woman became angry after her debit or credit card was declined by two ATMs, and she decided to pour glue into both machines. She's now been arrested. Pensacola police say Gwen M. Brown, the uh, glue bomber, was arrested on Wednesday. Detectives said surveillance images showed Brown walking up to an ATM, and she can be seen with a small tube of glue as she approached the machine. Investigators said Brown made several attempts to use her card, but the machine failed each time. Surveillance images show her then walking away, then glue was found poured into the ATM. Minutes later, Brown is seen on surveillance approaching another ATM at a uh, down the road from the first bank. And again, she was caught holding uh, on camera holding some glue in one of her hands. Hmm. 
So uh, the card was again declined. She poured glue into the machine. She's now, you know, in trouble. <laughs> Serving time. Was it glue cra- bandit. Was it crazy glue? I don't know. It was a crazy, crazy story. Wouldn't you, if, if you felt like it was an error, wouldn't you talk to the bank? You'd think so, yeah. Maybe call the hey, number on the back of my card. Or like glue your, or put the glue on your card, right? Your card's got a problem. Because it's one of two things. Either you have no money in your account or there's a problem with the card. Yeah. Not the machine where you're going to glue it shut for some reason. It doesn't well, seem like a rational thing to do. But then again. Yeah. Maybe this, you know, it was out of Florida. Yeah, it's a Florida story. So So maybe it's, maybe there's other things involved. Possibly. <laughs> I mean, I get being mad at an ATM. Right. Who hasn't been mad at an ATM? But. I also don't carry glue around. No. Not that I shouldn't. I mean, I if, you want to be, if you want to be prepared. Yeah. If you ever find chapstick on the ATM. Mm, is that you? That was me. Okay. Because my card didn't go through. <laughs> I can't believe it. Hey, a real life sleeping beauty uh, snoozes for weeks due to her disorder. Listen to this. Poor lady. Delany Weir, uh, Weir of, she's 23 years old, has a rare neurological disorder called Klein-Levin syndrome which can leave her sleeping for weeks at a time. Due to the condition, the U.S. woman has missed holidays, family celebrations, even her 21st birthday. I sleep anywhere from 15 to 20 hours a day. Doesn't matter, she said. When I wake up, I'm very spacey, delusional, just not in touch with reality. Jeff, I wonder if you've got... uh... You know, I hope this doesn't sound horrible, but when I read this, I thought, that sounds marvelous. Well, I mean, it would for like a weekend. Yeah. Just give me a week of that disease. Yeah. And, oh, it'll be bliss. Miss Wire said, I just have no motivation to do anything. I get very depressed, feeling really frustrated because I don't know what's going on. The episodes can last from a few days to a few weeks, with her last lasting five weeks. During these bouts, she will only wake to eat, drink, or go to the bathroom. Wow. I mean, there's a point. You die, right? You got to... Yeah, there's some there's some just general maintenance that needs to happen. Yeah. I mean, you need your chili. Right. Con carne en o frijoles or sin carne for o frijoles. I don't know. I'm at a point in my life where I feel like you cannot get too much sleep. Yeah, well, it's because you're working the morning show. So you're mm-hmm. now – you're about – how long are you into this? A year? Six months. Oh, boy. Seems that long, huh? You've been in it six months. See, Terry and I, we basically have given up on life. When you work the morning shift, you just you just don't care anymore. It's just like if I sleep past seven, I feel like I'm slacking. Can you even sleep? Like now on vacation, I wake up at six thirty yeah. in a panic. The first day, I usually wake up at about four thirty, thinking I slept through an alarm, and go, "Wait a second, I don't have to go anywhere." Just sleeping. Yeah, I know he does that occasionally. It's okay. Just if you don't you don't disturb him, you'll wake up refreshed, and you wake him up now, he's all cranky. There's really only one way to wake up somebody with Sleeping Beauty Syndrome. What's that? Uh-oh. So he needs a kiss from yeah. a prince. Yeah, well. That's interesting. Huh? Huh? Oh. oh. <laughs> Good to have you back, Jeff. That's the Sleeping Beauty plus oh. random screaming syndrome. See, it's it's normal when kids wake up screaming, but could you imagine a grown adult just waking up and screaming at the top of their oh. lungs? 
I'm going to do that. <laughs> Next time, middle of the night, just okay, wake up let's, and scream. Now, now all of a sudden okay. it's weird when an adult screams yeah, in I'll, the middle of the I'll night. I'll do that. I'll report back my wife's reaction. Yeah, just maybe like 3 in the morning. Yeah. Just sit straight up and scream. And then just, <laughs> just see what she down. does. In fact, if you could film it, that'd be great. Okay. Put it on video. I'll get my night vision camera that I have handy. When the kids throw <laughs> food all over the place, it's just another dinner, you know. Yeah. But when I do it, I get yeah. sent to my room. It's this weird adult – I don't know. Mm. It's like discrimination, anti-adult. I don't know what it is. Mm. Discrimination. Anyway, okay, well, we will take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be getting into uh, how do you foster good mental health in the workplace? What should companies be doing to make sure that their people are healthier mentally? One thing, obviously, for us would be letting us get more sleep. I mean, maybe they could let us just sleep through the morning show. I know some of you are. (laughs) Just kidding. We'll take a break. We'll be back talking good mental health with Dr. Amy Morin. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, an employee's mental health can impact everyone and everything at work from productivity to job satisfaction. Issues like depression and anxiety can cost employers a lot of money. So why do so few businesses take mental health seriously? Psychologist Amy Morin has returned to the show and is here to teach us today about the relationship between workplace and staying healthy. Amy Morin, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Great to have you. Good, to, um, great work here on this topic of good mental health in the workplace. It really, it it almost seems like um, maybe our our employment, uh, our employment or our employers aren't aren't looking at mental health as their problem, right? It's kind of like that's kind of a personal thing. That's your issue, but it is impacting businesses incredibly. Yeah, you know, that's it exactly. I think a lot of employers don't want to be intrusive or they think, you know, it's a very private, confidential thing, so we just won't bring up topics like depression or anxiety. But, you know, we talk a lot about physical health usually in the workplace, and a lot of employers really make that a priority to talk about your physical health, but we really don't touch the topic of mental health. I think the stigma is still there, and I think people are afraid that, you know, to bring up the subject. It's like it's taboo, isn't it? Because I guess it's because it's associated with mental health. It's we don't want to act like we think somebody's got a, a mental health problem, and yet, you know, they might have depression. They might, they might, it might even be you know disable them to a degree, and they might not be able to perform their work. And if we can't talk about it, it seems like we're only going to be making the condition worse. That's just it, and I think so many you know employers are willing to talk. If somebody had a physical health problem like diabetes, it wouldn't be a big issue. That the, if the employer knew about it, they'd certainly want to do everything they could to help somebody manage that. But somebody who has depression, I think a lot of employees are afraid to to bring up the subject first. But a lot of managers and business leaders aren't talking about it either, so it just gets swept under the rug. But like the elephant in the room, you right. know, that you have all these um, employees who are probably dealing with mental health issues, and yet nobody's talking about it, nobody's addressing it, and it just goes 
unaddressed and untreated, unfortunately. In, in your article in Forbes, um, you cite uh, a study from the Center for Prevention and Health Services that estimates that mental illness and substance abuse costs employers between 79 and $105 billion annually in indirect costs. That's crazy. Isn't it? And I think, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that, that when you have employees who are struggling, that often they're not showing up to work. They're using sick days because they're too depressed to get out of bed or they're just too stressed out and worried that they can't perform their job. But then even when they show up, they're not really productive because they've got so much other stuff going on and their emotions are are not where they need to be in order to perform. They're not able to concentrate on their work. And so it just is sort of this trickle-down effect where it's really affecting um, how much you know employers have to spend on on people, but yet again, it's just not talked about. No, no, it's uh, no. You're just just keep working. Everybody, don't don't look at the elephant. Keep moving. Right. Keep moving. You in your article, you you have um, some great solutions, and I wanted to run through uh, some of these and and you know give us some ideas of what we can be doing either as an employer or as an employee to create a healthier kind of mental health workplace. The first one you talk about is to create the environment. What, what, how, what can employers do and what can employees do to make sure that we have a healthier kind of mental health environment? Well, you know, I think that one of the simplest things is to just talk about a work-life balance. Too often I think there's the pressure to work 80 hours a week or to, to always be productive and to bring your work home with you, and that's sort of encouraged well more people work and the less time they have to do stuff to relieve their stress, the worse they're going to be. So I think it's important for managers to set some healthy boundaries, let people go on vacation and and don't email them while they're gone or to say, you know, that it's okay to go home on Friday and not take home work, take your work home with you. Yeah. You have to tear down that because there's that hidden wall, right? Where everyone wants to keep performing because everyone is performing. Right. And so to just let people know it's okay to relax, <laughs> yeah. and to, you know, unplug and to get away from it sometimes, too. Oh. And then, you know, another simple thing that um, bosses can do is let employees have time to socialize, whether, you know, you give them a, a space where they can enjoy lunch together or you let them stand around the water cooler and talk. Just having that break during the day can really give people a mental health break, too. Yeah. And, I mean, and also it sounds like, I mean, it gets to help everybody vent kind of with each other, but it also gives you information and data about what's, what others are going through. Because what I, I almost don't fear in my business, I don't fear people talking too much. I fear the one that's locked away in his room with the door shut, his office closed away, then, and we don't know what's going on. Yeah, I think, you know, and I think that's exactly it, that those are the people that, um, you know, bosses should be more worried about, the people that, you know, don't know how to reduce their stress or aren't willing to open up and talk that, you know, they may be struggling with a lot of things. Mm. And again, it's just weird. I have a really great relationship here um, at BYU Broadcasting with the HR department. I think part of it's because of my background in, you know, training and coaching relationships. So we end up talking a lot, but... I mean, it would be really neat, I guess, if HR was that connected to everybody. It doesn't have to just be HR, but if the managers were connected and everyone was as, you know, I don't know, into each other as maybe we need to be. We're some of us are so siloed away in our own little, you know, incubator. 
that's just it. I think a lot of people have worked alongside their coworkers for 10 or 20 years, and yet they really know nothing about these people. Oh, it's, so <laughs> it's sad. amazing how disconnected we can be to the, to the people that we share you know, so many hours of our lives with. That's right. And, and awards and recognitions, and you've, you know, you're grinding out these projects, and then next thing you know, you find out that, oh, they're married? Hmm, I didn't even know that. <laughs> That right. is so... After 10 years of working with somebody, you think, oh, you know, I had no idea. You're going through a divorce? I didn't even know you were married. Right. Um, let's do this. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Amy Morin, um, who uh, wrote a wonderful article for Forbes. And you can go to her website, amymorinlcsw.com, amymorinlcsw.com to get more information on her great work and her writings there. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion, give you more solutions about how you can build a stronger uh, mental health environment in your workplace. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's been estimated to be about an 80 to $100 billion problem. That is uh, mental illness and substance abuse and, and the impact it has on employers from 80 to $100 billion in indirect costs like absenteeism, decreased productivity, increased health care costs. So, folks, mental health issues, um, they impact the, the job um, – they impact your job place. They also impact you. And if we don't have a kind of an open dialogue, an open discussion about mental health, then all of a sudden we get a, a story of somebody that's not quite healthy mentally, pulls a gun, and all of a sudden you have one of the tragedies that we hear about so often um, in workplace. So we've asked um, a psychologist, Amy Morin, who's an LCSW and is uh, author of a wonderful article, How to Foster Good Mental Health in the Workplace, that was published at Forbes.com. And she's got three ways that employers can promote good mental health in the workplace. And because a lot of you are the employers or are um, have the ability to influence your employers, we wanted to give you those tools. So far, she's taught us to create a healthy environment and given us some skills on work-life balance and allowing vacations and space for people to talk but um, also, Amy, you've also talked about helping workers identify the risks of mental health problems in their in their workplace. First of all, welcome back. Thank you. And what do you think? How do we how, how do we identify the risks? What are the risks? Well, you know, um, for a lot of people, it's just the stress in general. When people are stressed out, that you know, they're more apt to get um, more prone to developing mental health problems. And so sometimes it's a matter of just teaching people about stress and, and having a healthy lifestyle outside of work too can make a big difference. And the statistics are something like one in four people probably have a diagnosable mental illness, yet the vast majority of them don't even know it. And so sometimes it's just a matter of giving people education, whether there's you know plenty of online screening tools that people can use and bosses can facilitate that, let people take these 
screenings confidentially that would tell them, hey, you're at risk of depression. Maybe you should talk to your doctor or maybe you should contact a mental health professional. And sometimes, you know, if a boss can have a um, mental health professional come into the office and just educate people, that can make a big difference just to give people an idea of what a mental health problem looks like because the truth is, because it's never talked about, a lot of people just don't know what are the warning signs and what should I be on the lookout for. Oh, it's so true. And then... Then they're like, Julie's acting weird. (laughs) And then we just – we talk about Julie, but we don't know the fact that Julie's depressed and has been and has been battling it for a year and, you know, it's impacting everyone. It's so – it's so strange how we work. We do it with exercise. Like we'll have – you know, you can see in a business environment where someone will come in and have yoga classes at lunch, but we won't bring on a mental health expert. Right. Yeah, how many businesses do, you know, you have a weight loss challenge and everybody's talking about how to be physically healthy and who's working out and who's losing weight and that sort of stuff. And then, but nobody's talking about, you know, your depression, your anxiety, your mm-hmm. PTSD, those sorts of things. And, and it's just not it's swept under the rug, unfortunately. Is it, um, I mean, and this isn't a mental health issue, but even, even um, attention deficit disorder and uh, ADHD, and I, and I look at that and I think, some people don't understand why this guy has 500,000 emails and he loves it. And it might right. be because his brain is working perfectly for it and others are overwhelmed with two. It's just – everyone just has a different ability, don't we? We just have a different code and we need to be willing to figure it out. Yeah, because I think too often we place blame. You know, if somebody's struggling or they're stressed out, we think, oh, they just can't handle it. Well, maybe that person has an anxiety issue, and if they just got some treatment, that could really make a difference. Yeah. I mean, we just had – I just had a, someone close to me pass away, and it was it was healthy. It was good. They were suffering from Alzheimer's, and and yet it's it's interesting. I mean, death is a big deal, and it's a it's it takes time to process it and and get through it, and I – and I think, yeah, but do you even want to bring it up at work? Because I don't want a lot of people saying stuff. I don't know. But sometimes we hide it ourselves, right? It might not even be that the company's not bringing it in. It's just me personally. I don't want to go there. Right. I think it's all about finding that balance because I think for a lot of us, it's not discussed. And maybe you don't want somebody, you know, during your lunch break to say, hey, sorry to hear about your loss because it brings too much up and you want to separate work and home to an extent. But to know, well, what can you do and how can you stay healthier? How can you educate your employees about what do you do? Death is something that everybody is going to unfortunately deal with at one time or another. So how do you support employees who maybe have to, you know, take time off to go to a funeral or who are actively grieving a loss? Um, And just, you know, letting people know how can you help somebody and what's helpful and what's not because a lot of us don't know. Do you you say something to somebody or do you not? And, And what do you say and how do you say it? And... There's a lot of research about just, you know, showing some compassion and how to do that and how it can really go a long ways when you maybe send flowers to somebody who's who's grieving or just to show that you care can really be helpful. Mm, so helpful. And that is your third point in your article in Forbes, Forbes.com is assist employees in addressing the issues, the mental health issues. And that could be, I guess, formal, right? You know, you know coming in and bring them into your office and helping them that way. I, and then I guess some of it's just informal, I guess, just, you know, by the water cooler. Right. I think just teaching, you know, if an um, employer can teach managers just what to be on the lookout for and what sorts of behaviors, to, you know, may indicate somebody struggling and then how to address it. And then more formally to have some policies. A lot of times people who have a mental health issue, 
they don't go to therapy because most therapist offices are open during daytime hours. Right. And they say, well, I can't ask my boss to get out of work early every Thursday to go to therapy, so they just don't ever get treatment. But if employers had policies that would say, hey, you know, if therapy once a week is going to help you stay employed here, by all means, we'll make sure it happens. And just being flexible about that stuff can really go a long way. I have seen that with uh, marriage counseling, too, where um, the person couldn't get out of work to go work on their marriage. So instead, they never got the help. And instead, it took them away from work and a cause. I mean, there was a divorce. And then now we had to co-parent. And it really ended up destroying the guy's workplace anyway. Yeah, and it's such a you know ridiculous concept to think, well, if you just let that person have the time off that they needed when they needed it, you could prevent a lot of problems that way. But I think that's a huge barrier is a lot of people don't just say, I can't get out of work early or I can't go during work hours. It's not an option for me. What do you what do you say, Amy, to um, the person and, – and I just had this happen recently with somebody where the person just doesn't get anxiety. They just don't get it. It's just, it's just weak. I mean, it's just an excuse. Everybody feels anxious once in a while. You just have to, you just have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just get to work. What do you say to that person? How do you yeah. approach that person in your workplace that just doesn't get it? Right, because I hear that with depression a lot too. That yeah. you, know, if you just snap out of it. I think it's a matter of just educating the person that. You know, if this person could knock it off, trust me, they would. And to give them some information, just like diabetes, you don't talk yourself out of being diabetic. That doesn't happen. Or um, that it is a real medical condition and that it needs treatment and a a proper diagnosis and that sort of thing. And that um, with help, people can definitely get better. But that, you know, minimizing it or ignoring it isn't going to make it go away. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's... It, it's amazing that we've, we're actually come, we're coming very far, right? I mean, we're it's we're we're making some great strides and at least talking about it a lot more. And yet, for many, it's just it's not even on the radar as an option. Like I, I had a guy once tell me he's too busy to be depressed. And yeah, I, and I thought, what? I mean, if you're depressed, you're you're still depressed, and you can be busy too. But yeah, it's amazing that we still have these sorts of stigmas and stereotypes and thinking that it's somehow your fault if you have a mental illness that it has to do with, you know, you being a weak and that you can't handle, you know, everyday problems in life. It's unfortunate. As a, as a counselor, um, and we can kind of wrap up on that, on this, what is there hope? I mean, if I'm somebody that has anxiety or depression and I, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to make that my identity and I'm trying to hide it. Um, is there hope if I really go talk to people and bring it out and make it a little more open? How first, how do I do that if I'm suffering from it? And and what really does my outcome look like? You know, I think it's important to remember that, again, probably for every four coworkers you look at, one other person's also experiencing similar symptoms. And so I think to be able to go to HR and say, hey, I'm having some of these problems and um, – and I think it would be helpful for me to get treatment, and this is what I would need from you. I think that can really go a long way when you bring it up first. If your boss isn't bringing it up, if you're the one willing to bring it up, I think that that sometimes can help break the ice. And then treatment's really effective. Sometimes medication is helpful. Sometimes therapy is helpful. Sometimes a combination of both. But to at least explore your treatment options rather than ignore it, it can go a long way towards feeling better and then 
when you feel better, you know, the world just looks much brighter once you get your symptoms under control and they're very treatable. Oh, I mean, that's the hope, right? And, and that, I mean, it's the reality. And, and, right. and, and to not have to do it quietly alone and, and just kind of fight your way through it. I mean, sometimes that'll still be part of it. But to also maybe build a little team around you and know that you've got someone with your back at work, that could relieve a lot of stress. Yeah, and I think if you are the first one to open up and tell some people, I think more than likely than not, people will come to you and open up and let you know, hey, I've also struggled with depression. I just didn't want to say anything, or I've been having similar problems, and or I know my spouse is going through the same thing. You know, almost everybody either has a mental illness or has had one, or you at least know somebody yeah. who does. It's in everyone's life, isn't it, somewhere? Right. Man, yes. powerful stuff. Amy, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work there. Um, at, uh, and go, everybody, go check out the website, amymorinlcsw.com. And uh, you can also go just look her up on Forbes. She's doing a lot of writing there as well. Also the author, by the way, of the book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, a great resource for all of us. I appreciate that, Amy Morin. And uh, we're going to take a break, folks, and continue the show, we got, uh, we got our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation that will be with us in just a few minutes. Find out what's going up on, coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. It's time, folks. That music says so. Let's shoot it down to our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show today. Today, it's Jerem and Jason. Hello, gentlemen. That's the music of my people right there. I know. I, I could, Jason, I knew a this. A picking th- and a grinning yeah. right there? <laughs> I, when I think of Jason Shepard, I think of picking and grinning. Hey, I, hey, I'm from Missouri. They have like a bluegrass festival really? in the small little town that all of my family lives in. What, what town is that? Uh, Dixon, Missouri. Dixon. Because mm-hmm. my son lives in misery right now. Where? In Maryville. Okay. But he's been all over. He's on his LDS mission there. Mm, mission trip? Oh, Mi- the mission trip. The mission trip. The two-year vacation. I the two-year fully out, inclusive right? vacation <laughs> to Maryville, Missouri is where he's hanging out today. But Dixon, I'm going to have to send him on his way to Dixon. Yes, yes. It's you not Dixon Shepherd's Land. Drive-in. Okay, Shepherd. Okay. It was that. Ooh. Yeah. Your family owns a drive-in. Yeah. My dad owned it for 31 years. Interesting. Yes. Oh, I bet if that drive-in could talk. <laughs> <laughs> Did you work there? Uh, no, I was too little. Yeah. I was okay. too little at the time. Darn it. Child labor laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But who, I mean, I, you'd think they <laughs> wouldn't obey those when they could get their boy working for free. That's true. That's good. Yeah. Man, see, see what we learn every day. Just... Every day, another chance to learn something. That's right. What was your favorite memory from Shepherd um, Drive-In? Shepherd's uh, Pie. Eating, well, no. Uh, eating pickles out of the uh, pickle tub. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Just sticking your nasty Just little my hand, hand in my, there. My Num-nums. dirty four-year-old hands. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and also going and asking the cash, uh, the, the person uh, behind the, uh, the register mm-hmm. to give me quarters so that I could play the uh, video games. Oh, like, really? Hey, my, what are they going to do? My dad owns it. They got to give me. My the dad quarters. owns this. Give me some quarters now. Give me quarters now and a pickle. Please. Hand me the pickle jar. <laughs> did you Did you have those pickled eggs there too? No, no, no. Okay, we're, we're, we we had evolved from that. Yeah, you weren't like you weren't that kind of people. No, <laughs> that's interesting. What, uh, Jerem? What did your What did your parents do? 
for a living? My parents were in the Air Force. Oh, boy. So you were an Air Force brat. Is that what they no, call you? No, we only moved once. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I moved to from uh, outside of Boise to Portland. Uh, Portland's a theme on the show today. Spencer's in Portland. Really? Uh, he's going to the game tonight. President there, Coach Steve Cleveland's there as well for the okay. game at Portland. So, so, oh, there's a game, huh? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. But th- then my dad got into carpet cleaning for yeah. a while. So that took us to California for a year and then back to Portland area, Washington. Did you ever reach inside a jar for a pickle? No, but I remember um, <laughs> I remember making some pickles, mm. the pickling process when uh, I was like six. Yeah, I love that. We did that at a neighbor's house. No, I love that. I love pickles. Who doesn't? Yeah. Come on. Get in line. Yeah. Did um did you guys hear the news about Tom Brady's jersey? Did what, they the, find it? No. Did they find it? It's up to half a million dollars in value. Oh yeah. It's a five hundred thousand dollar jersey. Well and now it's pretty crazy. Well, and like it's a federal it's a federal deal now, right? Yeah. So I mean like honestly, at this point, what's if you have the jersey? Like, you can't sell it now. No, yeah, it's over. So, I mean, like, what, what are you supposed to do? I mean, at this point... You just sit in your Lazy Boy and sniff useless. it. It's useless. Yeah, what do you do? Yeah. That's sad. And Tom didn't, you know, he... You know he would have loved to have, like, had that jersey. That's... A, it's a lot of money, but B, just the memories of the, the big grass stains all over it and the sweat and like the Gatorade. Who, who is Doris. brash enough to take that jersey after the Super Bowl? I'm gonna, it, had, it had to be a staffer. You would think so, right? Well, yeah. I'm going to bet it's the same guy that's been deflating footballs for their team. That's how he's going to get his the money de- back on it? Yeah. There was a guy on the staff nicknamed the Deflata. <laughs> that's not a joke. <laughs> check, check that guy's locker because yeah. he's got the jersey. The Deflata. The Deflata. He just deflated. That's sad. Poor Tom. I feel bad for Tom. I mean, Tom's got so much going for him, but he lost his jersey. Yeah. Oh, Tommy's doing all right. Tom, Tom's going to be just Tom's, fine. Tom's doing just fine. <laughs> Tom's fine. Hey, um, Magic Johnson, new president of basketball operations. Is he going to pull the Lakers out of it? He's the, Hopefully not. Yeah, hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's the worst tweeter turned executive in the in NBA history. Well, hey, remember, and when I say remember, the point is you probably don't remember because it was so awful. Remember Coach Magic Johnson? Yeah, yeah, that didn't <laughs> very, go well. Very, a very brief stint with the <laughs> Lakers. But they're bringing him in. He's like, I'm only in here to fix it. You know, I, I had a million other opportunities. He's a big businessman. He makes good money everywhere else. So now he's got to go in and babysit the Lakers. Well, oh. look at this. Now, now you've good, got good luck with that. Magic, Bird, and Jordan all in executive roles with teams. Huh. You can't can't uh, stay away from the game, man. You can't. Well, yeah, once you're bit, you can't go. You know, you can't, you can't leave. Not undo it. <laughs> you can't, can't unring not, the bell. Not want to keep doing it. What? Huh? Huh? That's a lot of negatives. <laughs> you're so negative. It's so negative. Okay, so uh, magic that will be a fail. Okay, good. Just wanted to know. Um, <laughs> fail? Uh, yeah. What, what do you guys, uh, what do you want to talk about? What's on your show? I mean, I'm sure you're talking about the big game. Yeah, we're talking about the big game, a.k.a. practice in St. George. BYU football is going to do. The Cougars Ooh. are taking spring ball on the road for a little bit. Cool, that's uh, nice. So we're going we're gonna to ask, where do you want BYU football to hold a spring practice, if you had the choice? Oh, boy. The, 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 fun the, response. Yeah, the slate is complete. I mean, whatever your Costa heart desires. Costa Rica, man. Yeah. Costa Rica. I'm I'm hoping we get somebody saying the moon. Yeah, Mars. Is this a satellite camp? 
Oh, it's not. Okay, just I like checking. What you're, I like no. where you're going with That's that. That's coming though. from my team, my uh, my better half, Terry South, just brought that yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Terry knows what's up. Terry it now. is not a satellite camp, okay. no. Those are generally held for high school kids. Okay, good. That's how that works. Yeah, good. Uh, but as mentioned, President Coach Steve Cleveland, uh, Spencer Linton, will Yoli Childs play tonight? Because he sprained his ankle. Saturday against St. Mary's, Dave Rose said that uh, it swelled up quite a bit mm. uh, earlier this week. Terry Nashif was in studio yesterday, said that Yoli hadn't really practiced the last two days. So we'll see if uh, if Yoli Manchilds plays tonight. If he does not, that's that's a big deal for BYU. Mm. The Cougars have struggled on the road this year. Man. Yoli, what a great name. It's a great name. Two things I know about Yoli Childs. One, he loves his mom. Mm. And two... He's one exciting basketball player. And three, he's got a swollen ankle. And he's got a swollen ankle. This we know. Yeah. That's okay. I, let me write those down as the three things we know. <laughs> good. What we know. Okay, good. Got the that. The more you know. Uh, anything else going on on the show? Anything else we need to know about before we launch you into yeah. the greatest show on earth? Baseball doubleheader today. Yeah. Men's volleyball and Hold action. Hold on. It's freezing. Is it here in Utah? The baseball? Yeah. It's, I, it's in Stockton. They've actually had flooding. <laughs> near in Northern California, near uh, oh, where they, San Jose State. Yeah, yeah it was supposed to be games. played on the campus of San Jose State, but they've had to move it. Uh, this is now, I believe, the second venue change, and they're ultimately going to play in Stockton, California. Holy, yeah, just where BYU had... plays normally at Pacific yes. and in the West Coast Conference tournament. So they're oh, familiar with that ballpark. Okay, good. So it's uh, that'll be good. Yeah, double header ball night. Yes, women's hoops. We're both on the we're on the call tonight. Are you, Kristen Kozlowski? Oh, yes. this, that's Party. by the way for the listeners. That is worth all the money in the world to listen to YouTube do Ooh, that call. Couldn't agree less. No, you guys are good <laughs> and entertaining. And thank then, you. You're very and nice. we'll be talking about pickles. From, You're very nice. It'll be on BYU No yes. BYU radio for the women's broadcast because the men's broadcast is on tonight. So. <sighs> Sexism. Yeah, I'm not going there. Okay, I just did. <laughs> I just did. I just did. I took. Greg wins tonight. <laughs> That's right. All right, guys. Sounds like a great show. Knock them dead. Okay. Thank you. Remember, we're here for you, no matter what they say. Well, as long as yeah. But I did bring up sexism. So, because why would people rather watch the men's basketball than the female basketball team? Especially since the female basket or female. Wait, you said basketball? Yeah. Oh, okay. I have nothing. You're thinking for that. another sport. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, female basketball. I, I'm. I, I better not say anything. No, but it's, I love it because the ball's a little smaller and it makes me feel like I'm bigger. Hmm. My sons have one, and we play, and I just feel like I can dominate more. And our back backyard hoop, I can dunk it better with a smaller ball. Sounds like you have a complex. It's no. It's just a small neighborhood house. It's not a complex. It's not huge. We don't have fences. Big. You know. It's just. I do have a sport court. I see what you did there. And a little shed. Not a complex. Hey, uh, <laughs> pro wrestler. Listen to this. This. I don't know why. When I read this, Jeffrey, I thought of you. I don't know why. Because I handed it to you. Oh, that's probably why. <laughs> a pro wrestler used his head to hammer almost forty nails. And uh, claim a world record on an Italian game show. American strongman John Ferraro, also known as Hammerhead, set the Guinness World Record for the most nails hammered with a head in two minutes. I think we have audio. Let's hear. Ah! 
That was a post-interview with Mr. Hammerhead. We'll be posting a video on the Matt – at Dr. Matt Show Twitter feed. You're not going to want to miss this. A guy hammering 40 nails into a board, I guess, with his head. Actually, a total of 38 nails during the appearance. Two more just for luck. (laughs) He threw those in later. Ferraro, who is also known – who also owns the one-minute record for the most concrete blocks broken on – the head with a bowling ball in three minutes. He holds that record as well. See, now, why isn't this our president? Well, many would say he has many of the same features. Uh, This uh, Mr. Hammerhead um, has a skull that is three times thicker than the average human being skull. That would come in handy for sure. Yeah. Preparation, training, and dedication to the goal in front of me enables me to have full confidence in my abilities is a quote from Mr. Hammerhead. How do you prepare to have a thick skull? Well, you you have to thicken it. I mean, it doesn't. It's not going to thicken up on its own. I would, it's like a callus. You got to just you got to work it. But I would think that this is an instance where matter is overmined. You can't like think yourself into a thick skull. Oh, can't you? I know many people. That because of their thinking, they seem to have a thick skull or their lack of thinking. So anyway, congratulations on both the records to Mr. Hammerhead. Uh, and by the way, what a great record that is. The most concrete blocks broken on the head with a bowling ball in three minutes. Congratulations to him. And finally, our hero story of the day, two male models who were skateboarding in Central Park and paused to take a picture of the sunset ended up saving the lives of seven teenagers who had fallen through the ice. It was all a matter of the right place at the right time for the two of us, Ethan Turnbull said Tuesday on Good Morning America. Turnbull, 24, was with his fellow model, Bennett Jonas, who's 23 in New York City's Central Park Monday, when out of the corner of his eye, he spotted a group of teenagers playing on the top of an ice pond. Uh, pond with ice on top of it. He sa- I said to Bennett, look, man, there's some kids over there on the ice, Turnbull recalled. Within the time I took to say that uh, and the time it took Bennett to look back, the ice had actually broken because they all came together to take a photo. Um, Turnbull and Jonas then rushed to the scene, jumped into the freezing water to pull the teenagers to safety. The teenagers in the water were all boys ages 13 to 17. So they ended up being heroes. One of the first things I learned as a kid was never give your body to someone that was drowning. I, I learned that the hard way, Jonas said, as the first two kids I got to, to help started pushing me under the water, trying to save themselves. They then, uh, the guys figured it out, figured out how to take, I guess, charge of the situation, ended up pulling seven kids out. Pretty cool deal. Heroes of the day. There you have it. And by the way, you know that's going to be a television movie someday. How two male models save seven kids. Derek Zoolander. (laughs) It's like Zoolander. Zoolander 3. Um, Great stuff, folks. We will have a – we're going to take a break. Actually, we're done. Till tomorrow. Nap time. Folks, make it a great one. Let's take care of each other. We'll talk again tomorrow.